Welcome back to this uh, online series of uh, topics related to comparative public sector budgeting and financial management. In this week we'll be looking at uh, some empirical methods uh, that we will use throughout the course in order to assess whether the theories and models that we've been playing with in the previous weeks hold some validity when confronted with real-world data. And so on to the slides. I thought I would start our, uh, our review of empirical methods by looking at one of the case studies uh, that have been assigned on the syllabus. Of course, we could have looked at uh, any of the case studies, but I thought we would look at particularly at the issue of tax gaps because uh, the calculation of tax gaps is an increasingly important question and many of the skills that are involved in the calculation of something which is completely unobservable will uh, serve will serve you quite well throughout your career. So in the slide in front of you, uh, what I've done is I have shown the band estimates for lost, uh, lost tax revenue from Her Majesty's uh, Customs and Revenue Service. Uh, you'll see there uh, bands for lost um, revenue in terms of income taxes, uh, estimates for basically what they call the black market, uh, companies and individuals who go completely unregistered and thus do not pay any taxes, um, unpaid or underpaid taxes by small and medium enterprises, uh, underpaid taxes by large uh, British corporations, and uh, underpayment of value-added taxes. And so you see here from this slide that uh, the, the estimates that even the professionals make, they have relatively wide bands of error, just in the same way that the estimates that we make in class, uh, we also feel somewhat uncertain about those estimates. And so as you go through this process of estimating uh, market sizes, uh, estimated costs and benefits, uh, I think you'll feel very hesitant, very uncertain about the estimates that you're making. But I wanted specifically to put these data up to show you that uh, the estimation methodology has inherent uncertainties in it, uh, as represented by these bands of errors that you see in front of you. Uh, we can go through about how to calculate um, those bands of uncertainty in the estimates that you make, uh, either in lecture or at another time if you're interested. Uh, but I want to talk very briefly on this slide about the way that the uh, the tax and revenue experts probably came up with these uh, estimates. Uh, they're the same way that we make estimates for other countries and the same way that you make the estimates uh, for each week's class assignments. Uh, basically one approach, out of many approaches of course, is that it's possible to take the, uh, the total population, total population of taxpayers in the UK, which you see represented on the slide as this kind of big green box, and then to start stratifying or start blocking uh, the data in terms, of, in terms of segments of the population that you think are more likely to be evading taxes. Okay, so that's on the one hand. And then on the other hand is to estimate out of those segments who are avoiding taxes, what is the propensity of each sub-segment in turn to, uh, to underpay. So, for example, you see uh, on the slide in front of you, 
that there's two boxes, a black box and a, uh, a brown box. And so the brown box then represents the percent of tax filers who probably underdeclare just a little bit, whereas in the, uh, the black colored segment of that population, those are probably those tax filers that underdeclare by a lot. Or they could even represent those that uh, don't file tax returns at all, thus underdeclaring 100% of uh, everything they should be declaring. And so you see through this process of, of blocking the, these, these analytical groups that you're trying to assess for underpayment, it helps you use your analytic skills. It helps you break down the problem in order to try and come up with these overall assessments of uh, tax under declaration. Uh, of course, as we were discussing in uh, in lectures, we need to think about the, the the revenue lost by each segment, and then by adding up those segments, it's relatively easy to figure out the total amount of underdeclaration. Uh, the method that I'm presenting here, of course, is the simplest, most basic method, um, but it's often by mastering the very simple methodology that it gives us insights into these more fancy, fancy macroeconomic economic models that some uh, revenue collection agencies probably use uh, today. So uh, continuing with this example, we're trying to think, well, how much of the population uh, underdeclare and by what amount? So as a first run at this exercise, of course, you're going to have to make some strategic assumptions. Okay, do we believe that 100% of the UK uh, tax-paying population underpays? Probably not, given, given our intuitions about British society, what we know maybe from living in the US our whole lives, and understanding that the UK probably has relatively similar efficiencies of government administration as, as the Americans have. So we know it's probably not 100% uh, of the population under declaring. On the other hand, we can be relatively sure that, that it's not 0% of the population that, that underpays as well. Uh, I mean, simply think to your own life, think to your neighbors, think to, think to human nature, if you will. It, it would be extremely surprising um, if absolutely everyone in a particular society, uh, Sweden aside, as, as kind of a half joke, uh, that, that we would expect an entire population to be paying their taxes. So, so then our next step is to try and think, well, what percent of the population do we think are underpaying taxes? And there are naturally a couple of mathematical uh, relationships or, or trends that might help us think about the segment of society that is underpaying under, uh, their taxes. Uh, we looked at the normal distribution uh, in class several times. Uh, which basically tells us the percent of any population doing something, let's say under declaring. Uh, so we might believe that the proportion of taxpayers who are underpaying is normally distributed with some particular mean, and that would tell us in turn that 20% of our population, they, they excessively pay or they pay everything, they pay almost everything. Okay. You'll have another 20% of that population at the other tail that pay relatively close to zero. Um, you'll have 40% of those populations roughly at either side of a mean, uh, 
Uh, we don't know what that means, of course, without doing actual empirical research, but we do have these kinds of proportions fixed roughly in our mind, okay? 10% of people being really naughty, 10% of people being very, very nice, um, and then 40% of people being relatively naughty, relatively nice. Uh, these are possible proportions that we can use, of course, as a first assessment in order to later validate if our model of under underpayment, under declaration, and ultimately underpayment is valid or not. So that's one possible mathematical relationship we can think about as we're trying to segment this particular population into groups in order to make our estimations. Of course, there's another mathematical relationship that we can draw upon. Um, I, I haven't talked very much about it in class because it's much less used, even though in my own experience it's, it's much more um, useful, it's much more relevant in many of the things I look at, uh, and that is the geometric distribution. Okay, uh, think, of a, uh, think of a downward sloping uh, curved line where you have 20% of your population doing a lot of something and 80% of your population doing really not so much of something. Uh, you can think of the distribution of income uh, as following this particular trend. 20% of the population, they earn a fair amount of the natural uh, national income, and 80% of the population earning much, much less than that original 20. And as you think in your mind's eye about this distribution, as you go down the line, if you will, um, as you continue past that 20%, you'll see the line sloping down eventually uh, approaching zero. Okay? And, and so what that tells us is that, well, the next, let's say, 20% of that population will earn some income, okay? and then the 20% after that will earn half of what the previous segment earned. And then as you continue to slide down this curve, the next, that next 20% will then earn half of what the previous 20% earned, okay? So you have this having relationship as you slide down this geometric curve. Uh, and this explains lots and lots of phenomena in the social sciences, and I'm terribly sorry that we don't have time to go into it because it's such a fascinating and useful relationship. But it is entirely possible to speculate then that tax avoidance follows more a, a geometric distribution than a normal distribution. Uh, for the purposes of this course, it, I'm much less concerned with the particular um, distribution that, that you apply or the particular assumptions that you apply in terms of stratifying your population. Okay, in, in terms of splitting up your market sizes, to use the 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 terminology we've been using in the past, okay, I'm much less concerned about that than the general method, the methodology that, that you use in, that, in tackling the problem. Um, so we've stratified the population, and then we need to think, well, how can we apply risk-adjusted values of under-declaration? And of course, uh, when we're looking at individual taxpayers, for example, the one of the key a datum that I might have in mind is the uh, is the annual income of a person, okay? Which I think in the UK was mm, roughly eighteen, nineteen thousand pounds per year. Uh, don't quote me on those figures, though. Uh, so when I'm thinking, well, how much is under declaration? I'm always keeping in mind, well, what's what's the average 
annual income, okay, for those strata that I believe are earning much more, I'll basically double that amount, okay, knowing that they represent a much smaller segment of the overall population. So to continue with this example, I would think that uh, the majority, or at least the average, of my population are centered at about 18 or 19,000 pounds. And then I have to think, well, what's the probability of that one particular taxpayer uh, under-declaring? And again, for the purposes of this course, I'm not so concerned if you uh, tell me, well, I think it's 10% or I think it's 30%. Uh, what I'm much more interested in is, is the rationale that you use in making that assumption and that probability assumption. Okay, it's, it's um, well, why do you think it's 10%? Uh, because I've read several reports and uh, I think that uh, the, uh, Customs and Revenue, they're very efficient in terms of detecting people who are uh, under undervaluing, under-declaring. And, and that would be roughly... Uh, uh, a valid argument, particularly at this stage of the exercise, because remember that you've you've guessed a probability now, but then later we're going to confront that probability with actual data, either data that we collect ourselves or data that we go out and find. And so in this way, you can think of your estimates more as Bayesian estimates than as um, Popperian estimates. Okay. Remember that there are two ways of trying to assess the probability of something happening. Okay, the Bayesian method, which you're probably less familiar with, and the Popperian method, which you're probably more familiar with. Okay, the Popperian method, basically you collect a bunch of data, you find the uh, relative frequency that some, of something occurring, and you use that average, uh, the frequency of something happening, as your probability estimate. So, uh, let's take the most simple example. Okay. Imagine that you're flipping a coin. Uh, half the time you see heads, the other half you see tails. Uh, you draw that on a chart and, and you say, well, given the frequencies that I've seen, I'm estimating that this coin has a 50% probability of turning up heads when I flip it. Okay. That's, that's a Popperian approach. Uh, just look at the frequencies. On the other hand, you have a Bayesian approach. And the Bayesian approach says, well, given maybe even one observation and some pre-existing beliefs, uh, what's the probability of the, the coin coming up heads again uh, when you flip it again? Okay. Uh, you, it, when you Google this, you'll oft, you will probably see references to priors and posteriors. Okay. And what they're telling is, is they're telling, well, given in observation, you flip the coin once, you get heads, and then given uh, pre-existing beliefs, okay, maybe uh, you were in Las Vegas last week where uh, the, the coin flip was rigged and the, the probability wasn't 50-50, okay, you bring your own probability estimate to that bet, if you will, and that will in turn color your expected or assessed probability of the next time you see someone flip that coin. Um, Bayesian methods are, are very uh, important methods when we're trying to measure something that's that's almost immeasurable. Uh, we can think about horse races. I mean, every time you go to the track and place a bet, you're basically using a Bayesian method of assessing the probability of any particular horse crossing the finish line first. 
Okay. Uh, and so the reason why I bring up this whole discussion of Bayesian methods and a Bayesian probability is because as we create our models of under tax declaration, I don't want you to be so concerned that your uh, estimated probability of under declaration is wrong. Okay, think of it as a Bayesian estimate. You've created your expectation of a probability now, and then as we go out and collect data, that expectation is going to change. It's going to start to move relative to the data that, that you're observing at the time. Okay. Um, and as you see, as you see on the slide, I show uh, a the sample that these report writers used in order to assess whether uh, whether their estimates were right. And I'm not going to talk very much about that right now. I'll, I'll leave it to a slide later in order to discuss how to how to block your research, okay, in order to correspond with the segments that you've identified in theory. Um, it's stratified random sampling, and it's a technique that we will discuss uh, in, in the future slides. The uh, only other question that I wanted to address before carrying on that may pop up in your mind is, well, how do I know that I've stratified enough? Okay, Do I need to stratify my population of underpayers in two groups or in 15 groups? Um, and the natural, the natural instinct of uh, young professionals starting this type of analysis is to try and get as fine as possible, to stratify as much as possible, to put in as much analysis as possible. And uh, of course, if we stratify the population in 100 or 200 segments, we can the, the, the complexity of that computation is almost so great that it would simply be easier to try and assess uh, each particular city individually or each particular person individually. So we see that this model, which is a simplified depiction of reality, it doesn't actually simple, simplify things for us. We want to stratify enough that we think that, that we're representing all the major groups who are paying taxes. But we don't want to stratify so much that our analysis becomes too difficult for us to do. Uh, so in, in my usual Zen way uh, of expressing the optimal sampling size, uh, I would admonish you to stratify or, or block, depending on if we're talking about statistical analysis or fieldwork, okay? I would encourage you to stratify until you stratified enough. And hopefully that will become a bit clear as we continue our discussion of empirical methods. So we've talked a little bit about uh, stratifying your sample. And the, the next question that probably pops into your mind is, well, how do I know what groups I should be looking at, particularly in a country that is uh, three, 4,000 kilometers away? And so for this part of the exercise, I would admonish you to use your imagination, of course. Um, I'm not imagination like uh, once upon a time there was a princess living in a forest, of course. Uh, instead, to use your professional imagination as we have been discussing in the previous slides. Okay, um, So, the, of course, the, the first step of using your imagination is to look at data, Okay, to refine your imagination, if you will. Uh, on the chart in front of you, I show um, structures of the Scottish and UK economies in terms of their contribution to GDP. 
And so by looking at this pie chart, you can see roughly who in British uh, society and Scottish society is responsible, well, British society in general, is responsible for creating um, all the goods and services that, that they consume in, in any particular year. Uh, you see uh, that roughly 27% of all production uh, revolved around business and business services and finance. Okay, and then another roughly 24% of production uh, involved government. So we look at these data and, and we think to ourselves, okay, bankers and and businessmen, okay, business consultants, uh, the the nation of traders, if you will, they represent almost 30% of uh, this country's GDP. Now, what can I assume about this segment of the population in terms of their under-declaration? And to some extent, this is where your imagination is going to serve you, because uh, you can't observe it directly uh, sitting in the United States to go and collect field work at this stage, remembering that we want to come up with theory-led hypotheses before we even propose to travel to London and the UK in order to collect these data. Okay, So we think, well, what do we know about uh, banking and business in general? Uh, we might have in our mind's eye a picture of the London skyline, and we think, well, what are the different groups of potential taxpayers who work in that, in that industry? And so we might imagine then a two strata, two substrata, two segments of the banking sector in terms of, of trying to stratify out the various uh, proportions of the population who are under declaring taxes. Okay? Uh, on the one hand, you might imagine those bright young things, those young bankers who are making multi-million dollar deals and uh, pictured as drinking champagne and wearing bow ties and generally being happy, as you see on this slide. And so we think, okay, for these bright young things who are, uh, who are working uh, in the city, what do we think about their uh, under-declaration? Okay, what kind of behaviors can we hypothesize about that, of course, we will test later? So we think about the bright young things, and we think, well, how much do they earn? Um, I know only because sometimes I see the, the, the salaries as they come by the university, and the salaries that they earn are roughly 25,000 pounds a year, uh, 35,000 pounds a year, excuse me, uh, a bit more, well, quite a bit more than the national average. And so then we think, okay, well, that's fine. Now, what can we guess about the probability of their underpayment? Okay, uh, we can assume that that the the chances of them underpaying, under declaring their taxes are a bit higher than a family in their 30s or 40s. Uh, we can also deduce this because these bright young things probably have a bit more energy to go out and earn extra income uh, that wouldn't necessarily be fi filed by their employers. So we think, well, 1% uh, probability of an under declaration and thus underpayment. Well, that seems a bit low to me. 10% uh, that seems a little bit high. I mean, think that one out of every 10 pounds that they're supposed to be paying to, to Her Majesty are underpaid. Um, just my own intuitions tell me that that seems like a relatively high probability. 5%, which I've put here, it looks about right. It looks, it looks like an upper 
upper level estimate, okay, which of course then we will test later. So now we're just trying to get into the general ballpark of uh, our estimate for underdeclaration. Now that's one segment of this market, if you will. Uh, let's think about another segment of this market, um, the actual businesses themselves. And we think, okay, well, what's the probability of some uh, finance director sitting in a, in a large bank um, being tempted to toy around with the numbers a bit, I, either le legally or illegally, prob probably legally. I mean, I certainly don't want to cast aspersions uh, on, on a professional group that they're acting illegally. Okay. But what is the probability then that these finance directors are trying to underpay uh, their taxes? And so, of course, we, we need to think about their, their income. Of course, we're not thinking about the finance director's income. Instead, we're trying to think about the resources under management, the, the resources that generate taxable returns that are managed by this one particular chap uh, on the slide who you see in front of you. Um, excuse me, we can estimate then that uh, the resources controlled by a chap like this might be about 50 million, 45, 45 million pounds. Where do I get that estimate from? Well, again, just using my kind of common sense. Um, I try and think about a finance department that's managing 100 million pounds. That seems like a lot to me. Okay, I think about a, uh, a finance department that manages 10 million. I mean, at the end of the day, when you think about it, uh, for an investment bank, for a bank, uh, for a financial company in general, 10 million doesn't really strike me as being a lot of re a lot of money. Okay, so as an initial hypothesis or assumption, uh, I'll state mm, he controls about 45 million pounds in resources. Uh, but then I think, well, what's the probability of him trying to optimize? his tax payments vis-a-vis -vis, uh, customs and, and revenue. And for that, I, w I would think that the incentives are much, much higher. Okay, there, there's, he has roughly a 20% probability of trying to under-declare, okay, and not to, not to, to, to tax cheat, but certainly to avoid taxes. Uh, you, you see the terms tax avoidance as opposed to tax evasion. Uh, probably in some of the readings that you've looked at. And so we think, okay, well, he has a relatively high probability of tax avoidance, okay, which will lead then to underdeclaration in terms of the resources that the government's targeting to collect. But then we think, well, how much is at real risk in terms of underpayment? I mean, wh what's that tax evasion part rather than tax avo avoidance part. Um, and again, you have to use your, your, your intuitions. You have to use your common sense in order to come up with a tentative hypothesis about this probability. So we think, well, is 0% a, a good estimate? Probably not, particularly as I've already cheated and looked at the estimations done by uh, Customs and Revenue that showed that businesses are clearly underpaying their taxes. On the other hand, I think I, I then try and think about a 5% probability. Okay, Do I believe that 5 out of every 100 pounds that these uh, investment companies are managing tend to be hidden from the government? And the answer is no. 
5% seems uh, excessively high, particularly given the, uh, the, the punishments that uh, finance directors face if they are caught uh, evading taxes. So I don't believe that uh, these tax directors would, uh, would under declare so enormously as to face uh, many years in prison, uh, at personal liability as well as corporate liability. Okay, so in order to come up with a hypothesis, I then said, well, I think there's a one percent probability that these individuals are under under declaring and thus ultimately underpaying their taxes. Okay, so that's on the taxpayer side, if you will. But then, of course, we have to think about the tax collector side. Okay, what is the probability of enforcement actions? which would change the incentives of these taxpayers to declare and pay their taxes. Okay, Be very careful now. I'm not looking at any kinds of probabilities of uh, the government paying taxes, which is clearly, which is um, uh, ridiculous. Okay, Instead, I am thinking strategically. I'm thinking about game theory. I'm thinking about the way that enforcement actions Okay, the probability of detection, how those actions affect the probability of declaration. Okay, I can't look at this tax director completely in a vacuum. I can't look at this young man drinking champagne completely in a vacuum. Instead, what I have to do is I have to think, well, what is the probability of under-declaration knowing that uh, enforcement bodies see the the, the pro this probability of under-declaration, okay, and furthermore, knowing that the taxpayer sees, that the enforcer sees that the taxpayer has this particular probability of underpaying, okay. I mean, this is, this is the, this kind of crazy philosophical game that we were discussing in the previous slides. Uh, related to strategy about one player knowing that the other player knows that the first player knows uh, his particular incentives. Okay, Th this is relevant to us at a very co a coarse level. I mean, we're certainly not thinking, uh, we're not trying to, to derive the optimal game outcome, anything like that. We're just trying to figure out right now, well, what is the effect of enforcement action on the, the, the likelihood of under-declaration? And so uh, you see on the slide in front of you then, I've put uh, um, uh, the door, front door of the financial, uh, the FSA, uh, which is the uh, British equivalent of our SEC. And I've tried to think, okay, well, what is the probability of them not finding out that this, uh, this bank director has been uh, uh, under-declaring or is engaged in other types of uh, irregularities, uh, not following financial regulations, which would then allow him to underdeclare on his taxes. Okay, uh, so roughly seven percent probability using the same kind of intuitive or Bayesian methods that we discussed previously, and then I, I think, well, then how much is at risk in terms of um, under enforcement? Okay. And what I mean here is I mean not how many resources are at risk for underpayment, but how many additional or marginal resources are at risk simply because of inefficient enforcement, inefficient surveillance uh, by the enforcement body. 
Okay, and you see here that that uh, that estimate is relatively low. Uh, and again, uh, for the purposes of this exercise, I've only looked at the financial services regulator uh, rather than all types of enforcement action in general. So I've really tried to define very specifically, try to narrow in very much on this particular market industry segment that I want to analyze, uh, rather than to try and look at the whole market at one time. I'd like to think a bit more about this game uh, between taxpayers and tax enforcers, uh, particularly in terms of the amount of uh, money we should give enforcement agencies like the Financial Services Authority or the FSA in order to uh, exercise surveillance over uh, taxpayers and uh, people who are subject to government regulations. Okay, You remember from class uh, I asked the question, well how much should we spend in order to find tax evaders? Okay, And one visceral answer to this question is, well we should spend as much as possible. Uh, tax evasion is a social bad. If enough people evade taxes, then that undermines the whole system of, of government. Uh, and that's one possible answer. There's even lots of support for that answer. But if we frame the question only from a neoclassical point of view, okay, neoclassical meaning that marginal stuff that we've been talking about all term, then it's clear that the uh, enforcement agency should have just enough resources at the margin in order to collect that same amount of revenue again at the margin. Okay, What do I mean by that? I mean that it doesn't do any good to give uh, Customs and Re Revenue uh, 10,000 pounds worth of resources if they're only able to collect uh, 4,000 pounds in additional revenue from that extra 10,000 pounds uh, uh, budgetary increase. Okay, So you see then that this same kind of uh, profit equation that governs private sector businesses uh, should, at least in this paradigm, also apply to uh, enforcement agencies. And hopefully those of you that are listening with your brains turned on will immediately spot the, the, the weakness, the, the, the problem with that argument that I've just made. Okay? I said that the tax uh, enforcement body should collect uh, 10,000 pounds if it has a 10,000 pound allocation or an increased uh, expenditure of 10,000 pounds in order to collect that tax revenue. Now, immediately the warning light should uh, turn on in your head and say, well, that 10,000 pounds collected does not include the additional social value in terms of deterring others from av avoiding to pay taxes. That's absolutely right, and that's why in the course we look at the marginal cost relative uh, to the marginal uh, benefit, but we look at the social marginal cost and social marginal benefit. Okay, so any assessment of the impact of tax collection effort has to include uh, the effects in terms of increasing overall tax payment and other social benefits on the one side. Okay, but we also have to do the same thing within the enforcement body. Okay, that ten thousand pounds that we uh, allocated to 
uh, customs and revenue, that's not just going to go to um, making sure people are paying their taxes. Part of that money is going to foster learning and other other departments of the tax collection agency. Okay, some of that money might go toward training, which will in turn help. Uh, the people working there now go out and create their own businesses after they leave the agency, etc. So there are social costs and social benefits that we have to look at on both sides of the equation, not only in t on the taxpayer side, but also on the tax collector side. And I don't want to discuss uh, in any more details about how to calculate that, because uh, hopefully those are skills that you have. Uh, such that if you're interested in working out this calculation, you can do that on your own. And of course, I'm always available to, to go through step by step with you if your own natural curiosity impels you to try and create, make this calculation. So, we think about uh, how much resources should a tax collection agency get in order to uh, ensure compliance with tax regulation to ensure that taxpayers are paying their taxes and in this particular framework we can we can think about the supply and demand for tax compliance services the same way we think about the supply and demand of apples or um, oranges or uh, cars okay uh, we've been using these graphs of quantity and price the whole term and we can we can think about this graph in terms of the supply and demand for tax compliance service. Okay, uh, naturally, uh, the the government will offer more tax compliance services as the price, as the value of those uh, services increase. Okay, so if society truly values uh, lots of tax collection, they are going to be willing to pay for uh, customs and revenue to go out and collect more taxes. Now how are they going to do that? They're going to they're going to fund that through their own taxes. So you can think about prices here not as market prices, not as the price of an apple, but as that proportion of increased taxation that people are willing to to spend in order for the tax collection agency to go out and collect more taxes. Okay, uh, this price is actually what economists know as a shadow price. It is an imputed price. It is the it is the value that we're willing to pay for goods and services that we cannot directly value. Um, and I think I'll leave the discussion there. And I'm very happy to talk about it more in lecture because the pricing of public goods and services is actually one easily one of the most fascinating areas of public sector budgeting and financial management. Okay, so all you have to take away from this discussion now is that there is an upward sloping supply curve for compliance services as people, as the society values tax collection more, as they're willing to pay more for these services, the agency in turn is willing to step up the quantity of services provided. Now conversely, we have a downward sloping demand for compliance. Okay, is that at relatively low levels of tax collection, uh, the, the the value of an extra amount of tax collection is very high. 
Okay, you can think almost about a Robinson Crusoe society where nobody's paying taxes, uh, no public huts are made, no public irrigation is made. Uh, there's a huge demand in this kind of society for a popular levy in order to provide some social goods. Okay, but as the amount of tax compliance increases, okay, as the enforcer in a Robinson Crusoe society hits up all these islanders for more and more of the coconuts that they're growing, people are going to find less value in this type of, of, of activity, okay, partly because they already have these irrigation services and partly because they don't value another kilometer of irrigation, okay, the marginal value of additional collection decreases as this additional collection happens. Okay, so it's the same kind of economic logic that we apply when we're thinking about apples and oranges. It's that same logic that we think about in the provision of a tax compliance service as well. Okay, we have lots of tax collectors out there. Uh, they're collecting reasonably well. Uh, they're also collecting uh, a fair amount of revenue, and then we think, well, what's going to be the extra value of adding another person to this 1,000 or 10,000 body force of tax collectors? And the answer is mm, probably not so much, and that's represented by a relatively low shadow price, relatively low public price, the, the price that you see on this chart. Okay, And we know then that there's going to be some optimal or equilibrium balance between the supply of these compli uh, compliant services and the demand for these compliant services. Okay, There's going to be some social value, some shadow price that will balance our wants for tax collectors with the government's ability to provide these tax collectors. And you see that on the graph in front of you uh, by the the dotted lines to the market price and uh, the sorry the non-market price and the uh, the the quantity provided by the government of tax collection. Okay, uh, notice specifically that this quantity is going to be less than what I've labeled the absolute integrity amount. Okay, if we want to ensure that everybody in our society pays a hundred percent of all the taxes that are due to the government and notice I'm very careful to say due to the government and not taxes assessed because of this problem of tax avoidance. Okay, If we think about uh, the optimum amount of tax collection, that's going to be certainly less than 100% of all people paying everything they should pay to the government. And that on this graph is labeled quantity absolute integrity. Okay. In order to ring out, in order to discover everyone who is under-declaring and ensure that they declare and pay everything, that requires an enormous amount of resources, particularly given decreasing returns to tax collection. Okay. It's very easy to find the, the first group of tax evaders. It's less easy to find the second group. By the time you're looking at those five or six stragglers who are just really holding out in terms of uh, under-declaring their taxes, it is extremely, extremely, extremely expensive to find them. Uh, and that's that's represented basically in the logic of, of this graph you see in front of you. So we think about the optimum amount of tax collection on the, on the enforcer side, um, and, but then we need to think, well, 
what drives the intuition for that optimal um, collection of taxation. Uh, and you see uh, on the slide in front of you, we have our finance director, and the he's going to pay his taxes such that the marginal revenue that is that or the marginal benefit that accrues to the company uh, to him as a, a member of the society uh, the costs of uh, evading jail etc will exactly equal the marginal cost in terms of what he has to pay out to the government okay he is a profit maximizer and if if he can avoid paying some taxes without any possibility of detection or any possibility of paying fines, etc., he's going to take that opportunity. Okay, uh, in the neoclassical economic paradigm, everyone is rational, opportunistic, individualistic, uh, self-seeking, self-serving, etc. Okay, and so he is going. His payment is not going to depend on what the tax code tells him, but it's going to depend on what the costs and benefits of paying those particular taxes are. And now we think, okay, well, what are his incentives? His incentives quite simply are uh, avoiding fines, jail time, etc. Okay. And what are the incentives of the tax collector, in turn, on the other side of this market? And we can think about them as providing public services. Uh, the National Gallery, for example. National Galleries, for example. One of the uh, things that the government is going to use these resources on are public goods, things like national galleries, uh, which you see on the slide in front of you. Okay, so they're going to take resources from this uh, finance director. They're going to use them in order to uh, pay for museum curators, uh, renovations to the building, things like that. Okay. And that those are the public services that the government wants. Those are the public services that you see written down on the budget and they say, okay, we've committed ourselves to allocating a certain amount of resources next year to the National Gallery. That's fine. But what about those public goods that the government is either unwilling or unable to program for? Okay, let's think about the London Eye. I mean, what's so very different about the London Eye as opposed to the National Gallery? They're both roughly in the same part of London. Uh, they're things that we as a society like to consume very much. Uh, one certainly charges a fee for entrance, whereas the other doesn't. But let's not worry about that part so much. Okay. The, the, the issue that I want to highlight in this discussion is that the tax avoidance of this finance director can go, and in many countries does go, to providing the public goods that the public actually want. Okay, It is not true that all of the public goods listed in the budget uh, are exactly what we want. And the amounts that are listed there are not exactly what we would give if we were king for a day. Okay, So we need to be very careful about thinking how we finance public goods uh, that we actually want through taxes and financing those public goods that we actually want as individuals. Okay, and this is this is the main argument why tax avoidance can be good in some instances and in some societies. Okay, you think about uh, uh, Russia, uh, transitional Russia in the 90s, is the example most often cited in the literature. Okay, uh, there have been a, a number of scholars who have argued that through uh, avoiding 
taxes. This freed up resources so that uh, businessmen and individuals could pay for what they actually wanted, as opposed to what the transitional government at the time wanted them to spend on. Okay, uh, if we assume an incompetent or irrational government, um, and I know for some of us that's not a very uh, very long assumption to make, okay? If we assume that government does not accurately reflect what we want to spend on as a society, then we can see that tax avoidance is, is a good is a social good. Okay, we take those resources and we use them, we spend them on a pro rata share for what we actually want to, to spend them on instead of what this highly coercive uh, organization wants us to spend our resources on. Okay? So we have to be very careful um, in assessing tax collection in order to understand that some amount of non-compliance is not only not bad, it is actually it can be socially good. Okay? Um, a complete tax payment may not be a good thing in and of itself. We always need to focus on what those taxes are being used to pay for. Uh, and I've noticed that my African colleagues often have the most difficulty with this kind of argument. Uh, coming from environments where the, the tax system in general is broken down so much and there's such a popular incentive to increase the collection and public use of taxes, when they hear this argument, they're sometimes even outraged. Okay, well, how is it possible that we don't want government to collect taxes and use that money on public goods? And the answer is, well, in an extremely distorted environment like this, yes, at the margin, it's, it's uh, very likely to be productive to increase tax collection and the use of these resources. Um, but when we're looking at a society that already uses public tax revenue relatively efficiently, we then need to think, well, at the margin, what is going to be the marginal productivity of the use of those tax revenues? And the answer is that there can be times, of course, depending on the, the circumstances and what the data are telling us, there can be times when tax avoidance uh, raises rather than lowers social welfare. Okay, So uh, those are some of the arguments behind the optimal level of tax collection and hopefully you'll see that those same arguments apply even to the size of government. Okay, Any government agency, uh, the optimal quantity of service provision should be somehow linked to uh, the value of those services and one one model, one method, one framework we can use to assess the value of those services is a simple supply and demand graph as you see in front of you. Okay. Now we 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 have this we've used the model a bit to think about the issue and uh, in order to practice our imagination a bit more in order to, and particularly the way that we use this idea of opportunity cost we can think about the resources that we're giving up Okay, uh, through the non-payment of taxes. Uh, remember, one of the reasons why we're so concerned about under-declaration and ultimately underpayment of taxes is because we don't get all the public goodies that we we hope to get. Okay, and so we saw then uh, from the data pr uh, provided by the British government uh, that there is uh, X number millions of uh, income taxes foregone because people aren't paying their taxes. 
Now, what does that translate to practically? Remember that thinking in terms of pounds and dollars and yen, it's all very abstract to me. Uh, but when I think about it in terms of national galleries, it becomes a bit clear to me. Okay, uh, I, I can see the picture of the National Gallery in front of me. It's relatively concrete. Uh, I looked up the the operating revenues for the National Gallery. Um, I couldn't get the expenditure figures very easily, but I assume that they're pretty close to each other. And what I what I can see is that the um, amount of tax revenue foregone roughly equals 300 National Galleries. Okay, so according to the British government's own estimates, if everybody who was supposed to pay their taxes had paid their taxes up to the amount they were supposed to pay them, we would have 300 extra national galleries in the UK now. Okay, um, remembering of course that that might that uh, this tax of, uh, avoidance might not be a bad thing. And very quickly, in order to try, as I was trying to find a picture for um, uh, tax tax collection, uh, this graph came up that you see in front of you: the impact of the shadow economy on GDP growth in Europe. Okay, and I wasn't even necessarily thinking about the uh, welfare-enhancing aspects of tax avoidance. Uh, but this graph came up on Google, and I, I looked at it, and I said, oh, yeah, that reminds me that there can be certain circumstances where having a shadow economy can increase economic welfare rather than decrease economic welfare. And so using my synthetic thinking, okay, that made me stop a bit and reflect, well, is it necessarily a bad thing that we're not collecting all these taxes that we're supposed to be collecting? And that answer is no. Okay, so there was there was something from Google, a chart from Google, that reminded me to play with some of the, the, the concepts and ideas that we've been reviewing in the course in order to provide a critical perspective on the type of analysis I was using at the time. So, okay, you come to me and you say, uh, look, all this economics analysis, it's complete mumbo-jumbo, economists have ruined the world, I mean, this type of thinking is, is the reason why we're in all such a mess, and bankers are evil, and everything is evil, okay? That's entirely fine. You might have a perspective uh, that is not ec economics-based. Okay, uh, you are a political scientist, or you are uh, a sociologist, and you say that the models that I'm applying now are not applicable or relevant in order to understanding uh, tax evasion behavior in the UK. Uh, to which I will I reply as I always reply in this course. Well, that's absolutely valid. That's an absolutely valid perspective to take. Um, and so you use your models in order to assess the, the, the reasons why people are underpaying their taxes in the UK. And you say, well, I'm a political scientist, and so here's the way I see the problem. Okay? Is, a, a, again, as you see in front of you on the slide, we have uh, various structures of uh, the UK economy uh, in terms of the relative contribution of various industries to uh, gross domestic product. Uh, and you tell me that the, the, the interest of these segments is not in their particular uh, demand for public goods, but 
the way that their political preferences translate into the political process, which then ultimately translates into administrative action. Okay. Now, how does this argument work? Well, we know that interests are, are just distributed across the population according to incentives. Okay. There are clearly some groups in British society which are going to have a very strong uh, incentive for very tough tax collection. Okay. There's going to be certain segments in society that are all for having the, the middle class worker pay 100% of all of his taxes. Okay. Um, let, allow me to stereotype or allow me to, uh, to create a caricature in order to, to illustrate very clearly. Okay. Let's imagine that the uh, very upper class gentleman living on his estate somewhere is uh, benefiting from uh, uh, large amounts of government subsidies. Okay. And so he has every incentive that the middle class worker will then pay all of his taxes. Okay. And whether this uh, landed gentry pays all of his taxes or not is relatively irrelevant to him because he's living off the, the public dole in any case. Okay, sorry, this example is a bit more is, is a bit closer to home to a political class than I wanted to make it, but there you have it. Okay, so we can think about the interests of these two segments of British society and their incentive to push for political action in order to uh, in order to change the uh, the extent to which tax enforcement takes place. Okay, uh, you see in front of you a map of the UK uh, distributed according to the uh, electoral returns by the various political parties uh, in the last election. I think it was, and we can imagine then that Parliament reflects in the same proportions the incentives underlying these political parties. Okay. Again, to make a caricature, let's assume that all of the Reds, all the labor, all the working class guys, they want relatively lax tax collection. Okay. Taxes uh, affect their disposable income very much. Uh, they're just barely getting by in life. And uh, they know that they can't really affect the laws that are passed in the parliament because, uh, you know, that's all upper class stuff. It's all the capitalists who, uh, who decide on legislation. But they can influence to some extent the, uh, the bindingness of enforcement, okay? They can influence how merciful, uh, tax collection is in the UK. And, um, at this point, I, I might diverge for a second to describe to an American audience the, the way British administration works as a way to, as opposed to the way uh, American administration works so that you'll understand this example more clearly. Okay. One of the big difficulties I've had living in the U.S. is that uh, American government works according to the rule of law principle. It states this in the law. Everyone is equal before the law. If you have to pay this amount of taxes, then you have to pay this amount of taxes. Full stop. No arguments. That's the way it's going to be. Okay. Uh, and this this approach to law has been very important for the Americans because it's an extremely heterogeneous society. It's the only way that we can live together as groups of people with very different values and interests is to have this type of legal system underpinning the, the administration of our taxes and the administration of our government in general. Okay. This is rather different than the UK system of equity. 
Okay. Um, I went into the, the tax collection office, uh, sat in front of the tax collector and told him, well, you know, uh, uh, this amount of tax applies to the NGO, but it's in the public interest to wait or to reduce or, or this. And we had a discussion. And the main, the main focus or area around that discussion was what is equitable? Okay, what is equitable for the society, what is equitable to me as the taxpayer, and what is equitable as the revenue collection agency. So you see public administrators and, and legislators in the UK resorting much more to various legal principles, and particularly the principle of equity, as opposed to the US. Okay, and so that's one reason that it's that background, I think, which will help you understand why I'm asserting that various political interests might be able to affect the, uh, the level of enforcement in the UK. Okay? Um, there are absolutely times in any society where various interests will militate for relatively lax enforcement of particular laws. Um, there's particular laws in the US related to an individual social life, which remain on the books even to this day. But because they're so politically uh, unpalatable, it would be extremely rare for the police to go out and arrest someone in their own bedroom for violating a particular state law, for example. So you can think about that intuition in order to help you understand why there might be varying levels of tax enforcement in a particular country without having to resort to an economics framework. Okay, So then we think, well, there are various interests uh, distributed in UK society for and against a very hard level of taxation. If we want to measure uh, this model, all we need to do is measure the relative proportion of uh, interests with these values, okay, the relative amount of people who voted for labor, the relative amount of uh, labor representatives in the parliament, etc. And that will give us a relatively clear indication of the, the political incentives for enforcing rather ri rigorously uh, tax collection laws, okay. Um, so that's an alternative framework for thinking about the optimal level of tax collection. It's not the social op socially optimal amount. Instead, it is the socially politically optimal amount. And in practice, those two uh, forces will work at the same time. And that's why I'm encouraging you so much not only to restrict yourself to one model. Anytime you get a case or a question in the course, to try and figure out the answer in a number of frameworks and only then step back and say, okay, well now I need to use my judgment in order to try and figure out which model is the most plausible, which, which model basically do I believe best represents reality at the end of the day, okay? So, so fine, that, that's another framework. But then again, we still have to think well, what is the predicted level of under-enforcement in this type of model? And again, uh, I would encourage you to resort to your imagination, your common sense, and your intuitions. Uh, let's think again about a continuum, okay, which you see as the green bar in front of you. Uh, we know that the political optimum is probably not zero, zero billion pounds. 
okay? Because then there, there, that's too little enforcement, and there's clearly gains to everybody, even politically, not to mention economically, of going out and assessing taxes on uh, individuals, corp persons, either uh, corporations or natural persons, who are just flagrantly violating uh, the tax code. Okay, they're driving Mercedes and having a nice life because they're not paying their taxes and because the uh, local tax collectors are turning a blind eye to this. Okay, so that's the low-hanging fruit in this example. And there, there's clearly an incentive to increase the level of tax collection purely and only for political reasons as opposed to economic reasons. Okay, now we think about uh, collecting a hundred percent of the underdeclared amount of taxes, which uh, was assessed by uh, Customs and Revenue at $25 billion. Now, that's probably too much tax collection. Uh, there are people who are living at, at, at the edge, uh, they, they live hand-to-mouth, etc. And if the government tried to go out tomorrow and collect all of these taxes, there would be a large political backlash. Okay, so we know then that that amount of collection would not represent an, a social equilibrium. Okay, there's, remember, equilibrium means that there's no incentive to change. If uh, there's large amount, uh, numbers of groups in the UK which are disenfranchised by any particular administrative decision, there are going to be incentives to change that equilibrium outcome. There's going to be, there are going to be incentives to reduce the amount of compliance in order to meet the political objectives of the parties who are running the government and the administrative political objectives of the administrators working in uh, customs and revenue. Okay, it is not true that uh, administrators, even at the low levels of a government, do not have what I'm calling political incentives. I mean, I'm not saying that the line tax collector goes out and militates actively for the, the, the Tory party. What I mean by political incentives in, in my framework are th those, um, those actions, political actions. Uh, think of them as um, uh, trying to push for changes in the administra administrative framework governing uh, revenue and customs. Okay, those are basically political actions taken by uh, government agents based on their own individual incentives. And the term political is very confusing when we look at public policy because it refers to actually three levels of analysis. Okay, and it's probably important that I cover these three er these three levels of analysis in order to ensure that that we're not confused throughout the course. Okay, when we talk about politics, we talk about three things. First of all, and those of you, those of you who are political scientists will be very comfortable with this, we talk about political values. Okay, that that's the first level when we when we talk politics, uh, democracy, freedom, justice. Uh, powers of the uh, Supreme Court or the Constitutional Court, okay? Um, it's those values that are determined in this political process. We as a polity, when we, when we talk about politics, we often, in this level of analysis, we often talk in terms of us living together as a polity, okay? We have a second level of analysis, and that's the, 
the, the reference to politics which, which most of us are most comfortable with. That is a discussion of the Republicans and Democrats, the, uh, the Tories and uh, Labour Party. Uh, that's a discussion of uh, the National Republican Front. Okay, And in that discussion you talk about politics in terms of going out and collecting votes and um, making political platforms. And that's the second level of political analysis, okay? But that's actually not one that I will be using throughout this course. Instead, I anytime I talk about politics, politicking, I make reference to this third definition, and that is the use of social action by rational agents in order to achieve uh, their goals, their wants and goals. Okay, uh, I'm thinking about the uh, civil servant working in customs and revenue who goes to his boss and says, well, you know, boss, uh, everyone in my district, they start to throw stones at me all day long, and my grandmother's suffering because of these taxes. You know, why don't you have a quiet word with uh, your masters and see if we can do something about uh, maybe not, uh, not collecting as much as possible? Or maybe uh, encouraging the internal auditors that uh, they should look at another area of the administration this year. Okay, so that is the use of, of of what is basically internal politicking in order to maximize their own welfare. And when I talk about politics throughout this course, I am thinking very specifically about this level of political action, individual political action, in order to maximize irrational economic agents returns. Okay. I would like to uh, I'd like to move on a bit and discuss the other two tax gap reports that you have in the readings. Uh, I won't go through the same type of analysis with you. Instead I want to highlight the learning objective for this particular exercise. You remember that we've been talking about synthetic thinking. We've been talking about how to link various readings and how some readings will help you understand uh, the intuitions, logic, material of other readings. Okay, uh, And so the whole purpose of this slide is to show you that this kind of breakdown of the various segments of the population uh, was done in another reading, namely the tax gap analysis conducted by the, the Swedish uh, Ministry of Finance, I think it was. Okay, So very practically, as you're doing your studies for this course, you look at the UK report, you see their uh, numbers, their estimates, uh, you sit back and you say, well, how did they do this? How do I understand this material? Um, and so the answer isn't just to sit and wait for me to go and present it to you. Instead, you'll say, well, maybe there's something in another reading which can help me think about the issues. And you open the Swedish case study, uh, you see their assessments, but they provide these lovely drawings for you about how they analyzed the problem, how they, how they segmented various segments of Swedish population, the probability of underpayment, the amount of underpayment, uh, etc. So you look at the pictures in front of you from the Swedish report and then you flip back to the UK report. You say, okay, well, what methods have I learned from Swedes that I might be able to use when I uh, try and think about tax gaps in the UK? Okay, And so by, by looking at the logic from the second report, it helps you understand much more clearly the logic in the first report. Um, I also uh, assigned 
an American study, it's mostly a funding proposal. Okay, how are we going to uh, spend money in order to collect more money in tax collection from the American uh, Internal Revenue Service or IRS? And uh, they don't give you very, they don't give you any kind of analysis actually, or very, very scant analysis. They say, oh dear reader, this is the amount of money we're losing. Uh, this is, these are numerous project components and this is the amount of money we propose to spend. And you have no idea whether those amounts of money, whether they're too high, they're too low, they're just right, they're wrong. Um, but it's the, it's the analysis you've done from the UK and Swedish reports that will be, that will give you the ability to sit down and very quickly, even by eyeballing the American data, to say, uh, look, this funding proposal, it, it's not very rational, it's not relevant. Or, yes, uh, the people who wrote this report they're geniuses. They knew exactly what they were doing. Uh, so that's the whole in intention of this course, is to give you those abilities, particularly such that you can do them very quickly. Um, my hope for you is that you won't need to sit down and sketch for 30 minutes a, a different theory, model, and outcome. You'll start to internalize the intuitions that we've been uh, that we've been developing throughout the term such that you can very quickly see spot any kind of problem. Uh, just to give a very quick story before we move on to the next slide, uh, there are many times in my professional life when I see some data or I see a report and I get a very uncomfortable feeling in my, in my stomach. Okay, I, I feel uncomfortable even though my, my brain is telling me, yes, this report is nice. It was written by a highly qualified expert. Uh, everything looks like it's in place. But there's, there's something inside my subconscious, if you will, that, that's nagging me. And sure enough, if I sit down for about 10 minutes and think through the issues, I'll always find something wrong. And it's those kinds of intuitions that I'm hoping to build such that your own body, if you will, will tell you often what's wrong in, with an analysis rather than having to sit down with pencil and paper for hours and hours. So let's move on a bit um, away from thinking about theory and more toward testing uh, the tentative conclusions that you've arrived from your analysis and your theoretical thinking. Okay. In this slide, we're discussing making an empirical model. How do you, how do you empirically model the, uh, the transmission mechanisms, basically, that you've hypothesized? Okay. And what do I mean by transmission mechanisms? I mean, basically, you've assumed that a certain segment of this uh, financial services sector, they're under-declaring their taxes. Okay, uh, they have particular incentives that uh, affect their probability of under-declaration and they have other incentives that affect the amount by which they under-declare. Okay, 10%, 20%, 30%. Make sure not to confuse the, the P with the X in this model, okay? Don't confuse the probability of underpayment with the resources at risk, if you will, of that are at risk of underpayment. Uh, so for example, uh, the, this bright young thing on the slide in front of you, uh, he could have only a 10% probability of under, under declaration, but we also have to think, well, what proportion of his earnings are at actual risk of under declaration? Uh, could be 2,000 pounds, it could be 20,000 pounds. 
And so the, the, the value at risk that you choose will have a very determinate effect on your final expected uh, underpayment, which is the probability times uh, these overall value, this overall value at risk. So we want to come up with a model that will help us to predict the amount of underdeclaration by, the, by these bright young things. And because, of course, that's the whole reason why we do any kind of analysis. It helps us understand the world. It helps us to predict the world. It might even help us to predict those particular bright young things who are underpaying taxes and thus, as a consequence, help the bright young things to avoid detection. Okay, so you see here another possible game which can be played between taxpayers and tax enforcers, which is uh, uh, bloody fascinating to think about, but it's not the, our main question that we're looking at now. So we want to think, well, how do we predict, how do we model uh, the, the underpayment behavior by these bright young things? And so we think, well, there has to be something that is influencing or affecting underdeclaration. Uh, underdeclaration doesn't just occur in itself. There's, uh, remember that our representative agents, in terms of this course, they're empty, empty vessels. They don't have their own preferences. They don't have their own values or ideas. They do everything. They're like robots. They do everything according to the costs and benefits of a particular action to them as individuals. Okay, so we sit down and we think, well, what might explain underdeclaration behavior by by these uh, happy happy young bankers? And we think, well, macro uncertainty that might be one explanation. Uh, this young man, he just graduated from university. Uh, he's making a pretty good salary, but he has student loans, and suddenly the economy goes bad, or suddenly inflation rises a lot or suddenly uh, all the UK's trade stops and it's, uh, let's say, trade and financial services. Okay, And so these variables would certainly have an effect on this young man's incentives to declare all of his income to the tax authorities. It would also, by the way, have an incentive, uh, it would affect his incentives to get uh, moonlighting jobs, Okay, to work at night as a waiter, uh, to sell uh, works of art online under a false name, uh, things of that nature. Okay, So we can think of these situational variables or situational incentives, and of course we can also think about the 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 usual suspects, if you will. Okay, Those dummy variables, those variables that Either he's this or he's not that, okay? Either he is young or he's old. Either he's a man or he's a woman. Either he is Asian or he is um, uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon, okay? And there are numerous scholars who believe that, well, just a person's ethnicity, for whatever reason, will affect his or her behavior. And I won't go into I'm, that's that's clearly into sociology, and I won't discuss how to model that in this course. All that we need to know for now is that, well, either he's uh, Asian, so the, the dummy variable takes a value of 1, or he's not Asian, takes, it takes a value of 0. And, sorry, and we want to know, does that, uh, does being Asian ultimately have an impact on uh, this young man's uh, underdeclaration, okay? And so we'll include those variables in our analysis in the hopes that they will give us some predictive power 
and help us in the future then think about those those factors that might influence the way um, people uh, uh, give revenue to the state budget. Okay, I've labeled those uh, our our x variables, if you will. Okay, so we think about this young man and we think, okay, well. It's, he's not just floating in, in this uh, empty vacuum of society. There's going to be things happening both within his bank and within the tax collection agency that are, that are going to modify those very broad incentives for him to pay taxes or not to pay taxes. And so we think, well, what are those possible factors, influences, um, variables, if we're thinking about an actual test, what are those variables which might impact upon this young man's tax self-assessment? Okay, And uh, we think, well, uh, the amount of money uh, spent by enforcement agencies, that might uh, affect either directly or indirectly this young man's uh, incentives to pay taxes. We might also think about the efficiency of the tax collection agency. Okay. And uh, I remember a couple of years ago, I saw some data online from a group known as Global Integrity, and they show these rankings from 0 to 100 of various administrative agencies and their effectiveness, their transparency, their accountability. I don't know if they're right. I don't know if they're wrong. For now, that's relatively unimportant. All I want to do is see if these data, which hopefully reflect to some extent the efficiency and effectiveness of public agencies, do they help us to explain this young man's um, under self-assessment uh, in terms of paying taxes? So we put them in the model, and you see the model in front of you on the slide, uh, Y, which is the proportion of his underpayment, of course, and uh, notice how I say it's the proportion of his underpayment, because we don't want a model which is not scaled. We don't want a model's results to come about because of one or two guys who underdeclare a lot simply because they're rich. Okay, so we want to use proportions. We want to use rates of change as much as possible because these data are comparable between ver uh, various groups, uh, different variables, etc. Okay, so y, which is the proportion of underpayment. Uh, by any particular individual or group, which is this sub i uh, in any particular time, which is t, is some function okay, of uh, macro uncertainty, uh, whether he's Asian or not. Uh, those are the x variables. Okay? And this beta in the regression, think of that as a pass-through. Think of that as the almost like a, um, uh, 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 a tap on your sink, on your bathroom sink, okay? Uh, as that beta becomes bigger, the tap opens more, the effect of macroeconomic uncertainty flows through into the proportion of underdeclaration much more. So anytime you see these kind of scary mathematical formulas in the readings and in the course, really try and, and talk about them in everyday language, uh, draw pictures, things that that give you a visceral understanding of the material, rather than just a short-term memory understanding of the material uh, that you'll forget six months later. Okay, I mean this, uh, this TAP uh, model of regression coefficients is something that I find sticks with people uh, throughout the rest of their lives. So uh, use these kinds of mnemonic devices to the extent that they help you. 
And we also see then that there's another set of variables, which I've labeled as Z variables. Okay, uh, the amount of uh, enforcement, uh, the amount of resources spent on enforcement, uh, the efficiency of the various administrative agencies. And so we, those are the Z variables that you see in the equation in front of you. Uh, and I've broken them out, I've partitioned these variables in two groups in order to highlight the differences between uh, those micro-level factors that are, can be influenced very quickly by policy as opposed to those other variables which cannot be influenced very much by policy. I mean, what we want to know as policymakers are these beta values for, for our Z variables. I mean, we want to know about relationships that we can change with the stroke of a pen and a bit of training. Uh, uh, for academics, it's very interesting the way uh, Asian ethnicity affects taxpaying behavior, but very practically, as a policymaker, there's not very much I can do about that. Uh, of course, that helps me in terms of tax assessments, knowing that Asians uh, underpay with a higher probability than Anglo-Saxons, for example. Uh, that allows me to target tax collection effort much more efficiently. That, that's a practical outcome. But in terms of what we're trying to do here, uh, these X variables are much less relevant than the Z variables. Okay? Now, what do you do? You take these variables, and uh, most of them can be downloaded in just a couple of minutes, and you throw them into a statistics package. Um, I haven't talked about statistical analysis outside of Excel very much in this course, because I see that for the majority, uh, Excel, it, it, it's still quite a challenge. Uh, but this kind of statistical analysis, this is the, the, the wow stuff that I think will really impress your, your masters as you progress up your career ladder. Uh, and I show uh, the statistics package that I use, it's called Statistica. <clears throat> uh, it's kind of again as a, uh, to give some uh, avuncular advice to you, okay, as a, as, as a peer. Uh, I found other statistical packages, SAS, SPSS, to be very difficult to use. Some of them require programming languages. And I, I really believe that's why most more students do not conduct all these fancy empirical tests, is because they see how difficult these software packages are to use, and they say, well, sort it. I'm just not going to deal with this. And, and what is worse, they tend to think that, well, everyone that does this kind of analysis, they're just deluding themselves. Okay, they're all uh, thick eyeglass-wearing nerds and out of touch with the real world, uh, which I think is, is a foul, it's, it's a problem, and it's a problem of the tools that we have that in some way are creating this divide between the quants and the non-quants, okay? Those that use quantitative methods and those that do not use quantitative methods. Uh, I use Excel because it's extremely straightforward, it's entirely graphical, uh, there's absolutely no programming involved, and it has the same level of functionality as, or better, than uh, the other software packages that we've discussed uh, that are popularly used in economics departments uh, in the U.S. Okay, uh, Statistica, they have all these amazing data mining uh, applications that are all graphical. It, it only really takes about 10 or 15 minutes to learn. Uh, it has online help so that if you're misspecifying your equation, 
it uh, it will give you guidance. Okay, well, this is what uh, multi. This is what uh, collinearity is. Uh, this is how omitted variable bias might affect uh, the outcome of your aggression. Here. Excuse me. Here are some diagnostic tools that you can use in order to assess if omitted variable bias has occurred in your particular specification. Uh, so I like this very much because it's a, it's a very dumbed down approach without sacrificing quality. Okay. So I would highly encourage you to use Statistica if you want to impress your friends and neighbors and even do uh, a statistically valid uh, analysis. Uh, you see in front of you a screenshot from Statistica, and uh, you can check for violations uh, of the, the model that you're testing very easily. Uh, it's great software. I encourage everyone to use it, and no, I'm not paid by the company for this endorsement. So let's think uh, a little bit about the model that we've started to make, uh, and more importantly, how the readings from this course can help us think about modeling as we go throughout the course. And I'm sorry to uh, continue to repeat so much about this synthetic uh, thinking skills, but in my experience, these are absolutely the weakest skills uh, in North America. Uh, this is the section of the course that I have to work on the hardest in terms of helping students see how various uh, theories, ideas link across each other, because uh, certainly in the working world, I found this ability to be uh, extremely valuable as I linked different projects, uh, different branches of knowledge, law, economics, management, etc. Uh, so I hope that um, if you will spend a lot of time working on these skills, they will more than pay back uh, in terms of your productivity later in life. So let's continue to think about the model that we've devised and how to bring other readings into our model making uh, uh, activity. Okay. Uh, as you recall from the previous slide, we've hypothesized that the proportion of underpayment is a function of certain environmental variables, uh, which are the x variables, and the z variables, which are those um, influences at the organizational level, okay, which influence taxpayers' behavior. And we look at our model and we think, well, is that it? Is it enough? How do I know if my model is uh, over-specified or under-specified? In other words, how do I know if I've added enough variables or if I haven't added enough variables? Because remember, the thing you absolutely do not want to do at any cost is just plonk in a bunch of variables that you think are cool or interesting into an equation and tell Statistica to find a relationship, uh, particularly with an easy software package like Statistica because you can do it in about 30 seconds. You'll certainly come up with um, interesting observations about your variables. Some of them will most likely be statistically significant and you'll run to your boss immediately and say, well, uh, here's a cool statistical relationship that I found. And so your boss says, okay, well, fine, but why? Well, what's the explanation for this relationship? And then you say, hmm, well, you know, I don't know, it's all very complicated. And uh, in general, we never want to specify an empirical model, a statistical model, unless we have a very, very firm theoretical uh, underpinning for that statistical model. 
um, those of you who will do uh, public uh, policy science, sorry, political science research in the future, this is the Achilles heel of so many political scientists, is that they read a paper about some theory of Congress, for example, they run out in order to uh, assess in uh, statistically whether there's a relationship between the variables without having sat down and modeled uh, this purported uh, relationship coming from the political science literature and it's always a disaster uh, so I would encourage you very much to think think first through the model and only then try and do your statistical analysis now how do the other readings in this course help you well, let's think, let's think to uh, one of the, the readings at random, okay? And I, and I really chose this reading just by flipping through the syllabus rather than having any preconceived idea uh, about using this reading. I mean, I, I didn't put this reading in the syllabus purposely and hit it a little bit so that you would go out like an Easter egg hunt in order to try and find it. Uh, you can use most of the readings in this course and think through synthetically about how they might affect your, your proposed model. Okay, so let's think about uh, public investment and growth, the role of corruption. Okay, maybe you looked at this reading and you saw, well, and corruption uh, isn't so good for growth, except when it is good for growth. And you'll, unfortunately, you'll have to read the paper in order to uh, figure out what I mean by that rather than like expression. Okay, so even if you're so lazy or busy that you don't read the paper, you've caught this keyword corruption and you think, okay, well, corruption might affect uh, this hypothesized relationship in my model. I wonder how. Uh, but again, no author's going to tell you, uh, look, dear reader, if you make a model like this, make sure and include corruption like this. Instead, you, you, you have to play with these ideas. You, only practice will make you comfortable in terms of modeling. Okay? So you have this concept of corruption, and you think, well, is corruption an X variable? Okay? Is it one of those general uh, social phenomenon that, like macroeconomic variables, would affect overall preferences, overall values in a society? Okay, that's one possibility. But then you sit and you say, well, mm, I don't really buy that so much. Um, its effect on the, these particular institutions uh, responsible for t tax collection, that's really where this, this variable is important. And so you might decide, well, in fact, corruption is a Z variable and not an X variable. Okay. Uh, understanding, of course, it's both, but it's only your judgment that's going to allow you to discriminate whether it's more important as a social variable or it's more important as an institutional variable. Okay? But then you sit for a minute and you say, well, look, I'm not going rush to rush to any hasty conclusions because Brian told me not to do that. Instead, I'm going to look at its effect on every part of the model before I make any conclusions. And we see the, the Y part, the dependent variable, and you ask yourself, hmm, well, I wonder if corruption actually affects the the dependent variable more than the predictor variables. So you sit down and you think, well, maybe underpayment is a reflection, is in, in fact itself a reflection of corruption. Maybe corruption is so tied in with the dependent variable in a way that is not reflected by the predictor variables. Okay, And remember, it's very important that I included that phrase. It's tied into the y variable in a way that is not tied into the 
X's and Z's. Otherwise, then you would have a co-determinist relationship. Uh, in other words, as the regression tends to cut, to chop away uh, the variation the variables and assign them to different to different X's or different Z's, uh, your regression is going to get confused. It's going to take this bell curve of uncertainty. It's going to chop up that bell curve. And as it's assigning uh, that uncertainty to different variables, Okay, it, it, it's going to say, well, look, part of, this very, part of this uncertainty is reflected not only in the predictor, but also in the predicted. And so it's not going to know how to pull that variance out and shove it into these different variables. Okay, so in general, uh, any time Ys are related to Xs, that's bad. And um, Statistica will even tell you how to solve that problem in case you don't want to sit through a very long statistics course. Uh, in any case, the, the, the whole purpose of this exercise is to get you to thinking, well, is the model misspecified? If so, how? Because as you do this, you're also going to think a bit about British society. You're going to think about those causal mechanisms, those reasons why underpayment might be occurring. And as you do that, your natural curiosity might impel you then to look at other readings. Um, I've listed two other readings on this slide which are related. And as you go through these readings, you're going to find other variables that you're going to say, hmm, I wonder how I might play with that, that, that issue. Um, exploring the relationships between corruption and tax revenue. I mean, at first glance, uh, it would seem all you have to do is open this publication from uh, U4, and then you'll know everything there is to know about corruption and uh, tax collection, okay, and the, the, the way that corruption affects your Z variables. But I think you'll find from your reading that there's many more questions that it asks rather than answers, leaving you ample space for making extremely important contributions not only to an academic uh, area of inquiry, but also a very practical one. So we continue thinking through about how to link the various readings together through the course, and uh, maybe you glance at the syllabus very quickly and you see this reading about the impact of globalization on the composition of government expenditure. Okay, And even without doing anything more than looking at the title of this uh, this paper, that might inspire you to think about some of the causal mechanisms involved in, in the model that you've created, okay? Uh, how the, the Z's and the X's relate to the Y. And we look at the title of this paper and we see, okay, well, it's the impact of globalization on the composition of government expenditure. Oh, composition of government expenditure. I wonder what that means. Well, it means that, that government spending uh, money on different stuff than it used to spend. And why is it doing that? Well, because of trade. Because uh, now uh, they're sending more goods to Greeks. Brits are trading more with Greeks. Or um, uh, British bankers are trying to give more money out to Chinese companies as opposed to uh, uh, British and German companies as in the past. And so we think, okay, well, if there's these kinds of distortions or effects on the, on the revenue, on the expenditure side, it's quite possible that the same thing could be happening on the revenue side as well. I mean, maybe there are new sectors of revenue generation being in the, the British economy that weren't there before. 
Okay, uh, you think about the tax, the tax collectors, and uh, in a stable society, they know, they know who's earning what from where. Okay, I mean, Britain's was an industrial society. They've had a long experience going to particular companies, knowing how much they earn, assessing taxes. They know where they're located. Uh, they might even have personal relationships with particular individuals that they're assessing. Uh, professional professional personal relationships and and so in this kind of environment it's relatively easy for a tax authority to assess and collect all the taxes that are due but then you think about well internet commerce and you think about British consultants who are going out and earning most of their money in uh, Vietnam and you stop and you think well what effect would that have on under declaration and underpayment and the answer is well it would have a lot of effect and so then you go back to your model and you think, well, A, do I believe that that effect is significant enough for me to include in my model? Um, me personally, I would say yes, only because my own, uh, my own work experience is so tied with travel and trade that for me, I just see it as a huge factor. Uh, but maybe your background, your judgment leads you to a different conclusion and you say, okay, well, all this trade stuff, it's interesting, internet commerce is interesting and stuff, but it's, it's not really a huge proportion of revenue generated, and therefore I'm not going to include it in my model. Which one of us is right? Well, well, both of us are right, of course, and neither of us are right, and it's that kind of judgment that I'm hoping to build throughout the course. But in any case, the only thing that is, that is right bet between the both of us the only thing that we can agree upon is this is a new factor and it is something to consider even if we decide to discard this factor from our ultimate empirical analysis. Okay, Always put the options on the table before you start to eliminate them. Don't rush off with any particular method of analysis because it's the one closest to your heart or your training. Uh, so we continue with this way of uh, synthesizing the readings from the course, and we see this reading about the collection efficiency of value-added taxes, theories, and international evidence. And, I mean, just looking at the title, again, assuming that you don't want to do any reading at all, the title itself tells you two areas that you might want to think about. Okay, uh, value-added taxes, which we haven't discussed right now, and which, according to the British estimates, are the, the, the most risky sector in terms of uh, under-declaration. Okay. So then you say, well, I've certainly got to include uh, VAT in my assessment, because if I don't include it, I'm missing the bulk of under underpaid taxes. Okay. So, so just looking at the title of this reading gives you inspiration, tells you, well, look, I, I need to refine the way I'm doing my analysis. Okay. That, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, in the title itself, it talks about collection efficiency. And so you think about your Z variables and you think, huh, I wonder how uh, the, the efficiency by which the tax collection agency works, how that would affect this whole under-declaration thing. Okay? Uh, and efficiency, we mean just by the, the extent to which they go out and send inspectors uh, for audits or uh, the way that we file our tax returns or the way that we assess statistically uh, the declared values of these tax returns being collected by the revenue agency. Okay? 
And so we think about this, and maybe in our creative inspiration, we remember last week's slides, and we remember this whole issue about debt management. Okay, You'll recall from the previous slides, we found that even the efficiency by which a Ministry of Finance manages its debt will have an impact on the, the value, on the debt burden of that debt. Okay, you'll remember uh, the uh, Government Audit, Audit Office report that we talked about very briefly in the previous week. And so we found from that particular case study that uh, efficiency had very important effects on the, uh, the benefit of the final of the final result, okay? In terms of debt collection, it is the efficiency of debt management which affected the final amount of interest that the U.S. government had to pay, okay? Now, on the tax collection side, we think, well, it's this efficiency might determine the value of the taxes that we actually collect. Again, remembering if we spend lots of resources to go out and try and find and collect under-declared taxes, it might not even be worth it. And so the, the, the key point of, of this analysis aren't isn't the incentives of this bright young thing banker. We have to remove his picture and instead we have to put a picture of the tax collector. It's his incentives that we really have to look at here. Again, you're trying to think, well, which method of proceeding is, is best? Do we look at the bright young thing tax payer or do we look at the bright young thing tax collector? And again, this is a question of judgment and this is the reason why we do case study in order to help you refine those judgments. Now, you'll remember that we were talking about two methods of doing empirical work in class and I said, uh, don't worry, I'll repeat uh, I, I repeat things throughout the course because you have to hear them multiple times. And I told you there's two ways of, of defining an empirical model. Okay, uh, Either you fit the question to the data that you have at hand, or you shove the best data that you can find in order to answer the, 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 the question that you need answering exactly. Okay, What do I mean by that? Um, most of the questions that you're posed in this course and that you're posed in real life, they're very nebulous, they're very abstract, okay? And many times you do have this, this latitude to define more specifically the question that you're going to answer. Let's think about the, the, the case study we looked at this week. Uh, the question in general is, what's interesting about uh, tax gaps? I mean, that was basically all you had for this week. And it was up to you to try and, and decide, well, are we interested in tax collection? Are we interested in looking at the reasons why there's underpayment? Are we interested in trying to compare differing rates of tax collection in Sweden, the US, and the UK? Okay, so to some extent you had a fair amount of variability in terms of the question you could ask. And practically when you go out and try and prove your theory, prove your hypothesis, you're, you're going to use the data that you have at hand, of course. Um, in general, we don't believe that you answer questions only in theory. You have to confront with data. Uh, and so you want to pick questions that are confrontable by data. Uh, you certainly wouldn't ask the question, well, uh, do British tax collectors feel more love toward their fellow citizens? And that's the reason for underpayment. 
because there are no data available, certainly within the case study, and probably anywhere, that would help you to answer this kind of question directly. Okay, So you wouldn't even necessarily hypothesize this question to answer because you already know that these data are are more than likely going to be unavailable. So while you're trying to define the question that you're answering, if you have this latitude, you're always going to be thinking, well, what data are in the case? What data might I be able to get that would help me answer a question that can be answered? Okay, That's one possibility for conducting your, uh, your empirical analysis. Now, you'll remember in class we said there's another variant. Uh, your 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 boss, the agency head, uh, agency secretary or minister comes to you and he says, "Look, I want to know uh, by how many pounds, how many pounds are we losing each year uh, because the head of the tax collection service just isn't qualified to do his work." Okay, and this is. Okay, he has his own prejudices. I mean, in, in real life, you often see people acting like normal people instead of, uh, you know, in this very uh, stylized academic world. And they give you these kinds of funky questions. But the, your, your, your boss has a very specific question he has answered. How, how many pounds are we losing each year from this particular department? And he doesn't want you to go out and say, well, you know, boss, I've redefined the question in terms of uh, love felt by tax collectors in terms of society, because uh, then you're fired. Okay, So you have a very specific question, and you don't, you, you don't have the data at hand. Okay, certainly in the case, um, maybe there are no uh, no results from field work which are done, and there are no assessments. Uh, let's take the, case, the the U.S. case study. Okay, uh, they propose various projects, they give uh, funding proposals, and very specifically, your question is: Is there have they budgeted too much or too little for a particular project or program? Um, you can't redefine the question, so you have to go out and try and shove data into this question in order to make the best educated guess that you can. Okay, um, Realizing, of course, that the empirical relationship you see in the data might not ac accurately reflect the question. So they want to know, well, how, uh, how, how many pounds are we losing each year? Uh, how much uh, should we spend on this program? Is uh, $4 million too high or too low? And in order to answer this question, maybe you look at a comparison of similar projects. Or you go out and you talk to a couple of your mates who uh, work in the same city, and they have opinions. And that's just the best data that you can get given the time and resources that you have. Then that's it. I mean, you have to let the ball lie where it, where it fell. You have to use these data, no matter how rubbish, in order to make some kind of educated guess about your question. So you present the data, you present any empirical analysis, statistical work, regressions, etc., but then you are correspondingly humble about the results that you found. Uh, you would say in the report, well, I asked five of my mates what they thought. Uh, these are the scores they gave on a scale of one to five. Um, and therefore, I conclude the project is overfunded. But please remember, reader, that these conclusions are based on my beer side chat with five of my mates. 
Okay, so you want to be, you, you, you don't want to throw out empirical methods only because you believe they won't be 100% reliable. Instead, you always want to use the fruits of the empirical revolution that were given to us by Bacon, Hobbes, and all these other great guys, but you want to be appropriately humble in your conclusion making. Uh, one, I'm probably one of the main lessons, arguments, points of view I would like you to take away from this course is that without data there is no argument, full stop. Okay? We, can, we, we can and will sit and debate uh, theory for hours, days, months, years, but at the end of the day the only way to resolve this difference of opinion is through data. And if there are no data, there's basically no argument because we are speculating just as if we were to speculate on whether uh, one alien race was better than another alien race. Uh, because we're, we're, we're talking basically in the world of fantasy, uh, theory, hypotheses, without data there's no more sense in discussing this issue. And that's why it is so very important, I believe, for you to at least master the rudiments of Excel and certainly understand how statistical analyses work. So as you see in front of you, uh, I've given a screenshot of part of the tax gap report. It's actually a project assessment from the United States. And I've given a sneak preview already about the kinds of questions that you might want to ask yourself when doing the exercises related to this reading. Um, basically, they talk about expanding information reporting, third, third party reporting is critical, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they propose to require information reporting on payments to corporations. They tell this proposal would require a business to file an information return for payments aggregating to $600 or more in a calendar year. And so basically what you have to do here is, well, if your natural curiosity leads you in this direction, is to try and figure out, is that a good proposal or is it a bad proposal? I mean, what are going to be the effects on the economy of requiring all businesses to file informational returns to the IRS for payments over $600? Uh, hopefully you can see that that's going to impose a huge administrative burden on uh, the American private sector. Uh, but then we have to think, well, what is going to be the social benefit of that, uh, of this project, the imposition of these informational returns? what is going to be the benefit of that project on uh, tax collection and thus the thing we're really interested in which is actually um, social welfare. Okay, Can we deduce that increased amounts of taxes lead to uh, better educated children, a safer country, uh, better quality of products sold in the markets, uh, things of this nature. Uh, in order to do that, we have this proposal of uh, $7.7 .7 billion in order to create this, this system, okay, this informational filing system. And what we're really interested in knowing is, does the $7.7 .7 billion that we use in order to finance this system of collecting these informational returns, does it basically pay for itself? Do these social benefits outweigh not only the social costs, but the immediate financial costs of putting this program into place? 
And so that's your job, basically, is to sit with a blank piece of paper and try and work out uh, these social costs and social benefits through trying to assess the effect of the $7.7 .7 billion, right? So if it was me, what I might do is I might sit in front of a blank sheet of paper and write the $7.7 .7 billion on the, the top of the paper. And then I would think, well, what are they likely to use those funds for? And again, because we don't have more information about this project, and, and we don't need it at this stage of the analysis, you might want to just think, well, what are the various things they might spend this money on? Okay. Well, clearly staff, they need people to collect these returns uh, either in paper or online, read through them, make sure they're, they're filled in okay, um, make, make sure that the, the, the threshold has been met. Uh, so, so that's one area. And then you need to think, well, how many people are they going to need to hire? 10, 100,000, million? And it's your market sizing skills which are going to help you make this determination. Okay, so you decide that you need uh, on the labor side, on the capital side, you need to think, well, uh, what kind of resources do these people need? Uh, they each need to be given a computer. Uh, they need to be given either an office or preferably a cubicle. Uh, they need to be given uh, chairs, electricity, uh, maybe an office plant, uh, th things of that nature. And so as you go sketching through how this money will be spent, that's going to give you a better idea about uh, if it's too much or too little. Okay, so that would probably be the next step in my analysis. I would then maybe toward the bottom of the page, leaving plenty of, of space, try and connect the expenditure with the uh, expected benefits and expected costs of this program. Right. So on the expected benefits side, I would think, well, what is this money likely to be used for? What is the highest marginal utility use for these funds? Okay. It's not good enough simply to say, well, the funds will go into the, the, the general budget and whatever the budget deems important, that's probably what the funds will be used for. Okay. In all likelihood, that might be the, the the final outcome of your analysis, okay? You might say, well, look, I really have no idea what these funds are going to be used for, and therefore, as my backup plan, as my backup analysis, I'm going to assume that these funds will have the same allocation, the same priority as the general budget, okay? And so whatever goes into this big, big pot of money, whatever Congress decides is the best use, that's the use it's going to go to. Um, but I see as that as kind of a cop-out, as kind of a second best. Uh, ideally, we know that we want to tie revenue collection to expenditure. Okay, We want to make sure that the, the, the funds we're collecting serve some uh, social benefit, and hopefully the way that we collect those revenues will actually help contribute to the effectiveness of those benefits. Uh, so if we're thinking, uh, of course, about um, local taxes, we want local taxes to be raised such that it improves local education. Uh, using that same kind of philosophy, we think, well, how does this informational filing system, how might, what kinds of expenditures might that go toward? Okay, uh, taxpayer uh, uh, education. Okay, that's one possibility. Uh, risk assessment. Uh, what else might a revenue authority uh, funding a, a, a funding of emergency programs for economic recovery? 
that might be another possibility. Um, a priority hiring program aimed at uh, disabled citizens. Okay, so the program would seek on a preferential basis to the extent allowed by American law uh, those with disabilities. Okay, so that, that's another possible area of analysis to look at. As a way of getting you to practice tying revenues to expenditures. Um, at this point, don't worry so, so much if your proposals are uh, in perfect conformance with law, if they are absolute, uh, if they're practical, okay, if you believe the head of the administration will say, uh, yes, I'm willing to do that. Uh, often many of your ideas will, will seem brilliant from a theoretical point of view, but that voice in the back of your mind is saying, there's no way anyone would ever agree to this idea. Okay. For now, this is think of this as your training arena. Just get comfortable with this type of analysis, especially in the normative realm. Don't worry so much about the positive realm yet. Okay. Um, so then you still have this blank sheet of paper, and you've got this social costs corner in the lower right-hand side that's still empty. And you have to think, well, what are going to be the social costs of this program? And we're not talking about the $7.7 .7 billion. Instead, we're thinking about things like uh, the regulatory burden on businesses. Okay, they, they might need to spend uh, one hour a week preparing these informational returns uh, on the aggregate. I mean, they won't do it every week. They might uh, bunch them all into a quarter or a annual reporting, depending on how the program's structured. But it's still the case that if they need to spend one to two hours a week uh, processing these returns, that's time and resources that they can't use uh, building cars, growing tomatoes, doing whatever it is these companies are doing. So you think, well, what are going to be the impacts on reduced profits? What are the immediate cost impacts? How many people does a medium-sized company have to hire in order to process these kinds of returns? Or more likely, how many hours of employee time are they going to have to divert from um, analysis of a takeover, for example, to uh, studying to make sure that these forms are filled in correctly. So it's that kind of analysis that you'll be interested in. You might also, if, if you're really motivated, you might even think about secondary impacts on society. Okay, um, a bright young, bright young man is uh, hired to check these informational returns rather than go work on Wall Street. What is going to be the impact on um, on growth, on uh, returns to our society of that labor allocation decision, which has been um, sponsored, promoted by the, this new IRS program? Okay, so play around a bit with the models, again, using your circles and arrows uh, to guide you. I mean, when I talked about this labor reallocation, that might have that might not have been something that just popped into your head and you said, oh, that's obvious, okay? But when you draw circles on your paper, when you maybe write the production function, this is a way of helping you check for blind spots that maybe you wouldn't have seen just relying on your own intuitions. And remember that each reading or, or case that's assigned is, is replete with these kinds of questions. In terms of uh, this uh, funding proposal for the IRS, I picked one 
one proposal for $7.7 billion, but the actual case has all kinds of proposals, all kinds of statements, all kinds of what are basically speculations, because right now this is a budget. So the, the, the writers, they had to do the same thing you did. They, that, well, the same thing that you are doing now. They have to speculate. They have to hypothesize. They, they're taking an educated guess about the, the, the allocation of these resources. I mean, someone somewhere in the IRS thinks that it's a brilliant idea to allocate $7.7 .7 billion of taxpayer money uh, because that's going to make our communities, that's going to make our businesses, that's going to make our families stronger, healthier, better. And it's up to you to deduce, A, well, what was going through this guy's mind when he made this proposal, and B, was anything useful going through this guy's mind as he made this proposal? I mean, it was, is this a useful proposal? And that's basically up to you right now in order to assess, given the extremely limited information that you have now. And of course, remember, I'm not, in, I'm not uh, trying to assess how, how well this budget's been, how, how well these resources have been allocated. And I'm not trying to assess whether your guess is really right or really wrong. What I'm, what I'm trying to do is listen to you as you go through your analysis and make proposals about things that you might not, not have thought about. Or um, if you just stopped halfway because the, the, the problem was impossible, maybe to urge you forward a bit, to coach you, guide you, encourage you. So that's the real value of this exercise. Uh, I'm not expecting you to come up with a official estimate that... Um, 7.2 billion are necessary, and uh, that's that's the final answer. Okay, it's the process which is very very important to me. The other uh, the other reason why I think this case is so important to you is because by going through each of these budget proposals, it's going to help hone your judgment. Okay, now what I've done is I've given you a a very boring reading. Let's face it, this is not something you would read to your uh, to your spouse or your children or, uh, you know, go on, on American Idol and uh, perform, okay? Um, but I've assigned it for a, read it, a reason is that some proposals are going to be more relevant than others. Some uh, projects are going to be more useful than others. And when I see you select one project versus another, that's going to tell me a lot about your judgment, about your intuitions, about that, that, that first glance reason why you think some budgetary allocations are more important than others. And so it's that process of identifying the important thing in the case that helps hone this judgment that I'm hoping that you will develop throughout the, this course. Now, we've been discussing the, the, the U.S. case, the U.S. tax gap. Um, basically, it's a budgetary proposal. And uh, I want to discuss a little bit about the core skills that I'm hoping you'll develop uh, in this course. Remember, we said that the first step in, in the process was to define the question. And in the last slide, we talked about defining the question. And I said that the, you define the question by going through the case, the proposal, and finding those things that are most interesting to you. And by looking at, at your judgment, I'm able to help you refine that judgment 
of course, assuming if you believe that my judgment's any better, which is uh, very doubtful, but there you have it. Okay. So in the last slide, we talked about def uh, defining the question. We then move on in, in the case to uh, defining the model. What model are we going to assess in order to evaluate these, bu these bu budgetary proposals? Okay. Or maybe you've decided that the budgetary proposals are less interesting than uh, the tax gap map. Okay. Uh, in the reading, you saw that the IRS provided a, basically a map of undercollected taxes in various areas of revenue collection. And so you look at that map and you say, well, I want to explain why there is more undercollection of taxes in, uh, let's say, estate tax collection than in uh, income tax collection. Okay. And, and so that's the, the interesting question for you. You've defined the question. And now it's your turn to use the model. And you have an MBA, okay? Let's let's say you have an MBA, um, but you're not an economist. So you you say this supply and demand and prices all all this is too academic. You don't know what you're talking about. Economic stuff is out. No economics models. Uh, but you also believe that this politics stuff it, it's also a bunch of rubbish, okay? Uh, political scientists, they're all living in, in an unreal world. Uh, they don't understand how the real world works, what it means to manage a tax collection agency, what it means to work in a business. And so for you, the most important model is going to be a managerial model, a model from management. And for some reason in your mind, you've, you've been enamored to uh, this, this new concept of six, well, it's not new anymore, sorry, uh, this concept of Six Sigma. Okay. You believe, or you speculate, you hypothesize that one reason for varying levels of tax collection stems from the, the control of the tax collection process itself. In other words, you think that there are some areas of, of the revenue agency that are not under control. There's high variance in collection procedures. Okay. In one particular uh, revenue region, uh, department area, uh, the, the employees are working very carefully according to the rules. Uh, the, the process is under control. Okay. When you look at the amounts of revenue collected by different tax collectors, they're relatively equal. They're relatively stable. Okay. Each person's collecting relatively the same amount of revenue per time, per resources expended to get that money. Okay, we describe that process as being under control. Conversely, a process is not under control is a department where you have some high performers and some low performers. Uh, people going out and doing what they think is best. Uh, there's large levels of variation between collectors' revenues or uplifts or increased amount of taxes that were that they're collecting. Okay, so you you hypothesize that this happens in the American uh, tax collection agency because it happens in every business. And you say, okay, well, it's this model of Six Sigma, it's this model of tax collection of organizational effectiveness that I think really explains differences in collection rates between various agencies of the Internal Revenue Service, okay, or any, any revenue agency. And so you have this model and you have the question, why are different tax why are there different collection rates? You have your model, uh, 
And people who talk about Six Sigma, I mean, they're usually slightly religious about it, okay? It explains everything, everywhere. Six Sigma is the way to make your organization perfect. It's, I mean, they have really sometimes have this messianic tone about them. Um, and so you think this really, really explains uh, tax gap differences, uh, differences in collection rates. And then you say, okay, well, I hypothesize there's different change agents in the IRS. Um, some are more able to put con uh, controlled, stable processes in place than others. Um, but then it comes time to test this theory. Hmm, well, oops, what do I do? And it's not very likely the IRS are going to open the doors and say, oh, yes, uh, you have a, a new Ivy League degree. Please come in and uh, study our collection rates, and we're, we're very happy to hear from you. Uh, at this point in your theorizing, in your speculation, you, you think that the data you need to collect are simply going to be unavailable. Okay? And if there are no data, there is no model. So you immediately start to worry about the validity of your model, not in terms of an intellectual approach, but in terms of producing some kind of output, a policy brief that you're required that you're required to put out at the end of the day. And so you're slightly trapped into you're painted into a corner now. Um, I won't discuss how to get around this issue because, of course, every problem has a solution. But I wanted to use this example to highlight the message that I made earlier, which is that uh, theorizing and the design of the empirical part of your work, the two go hand in hand. And so you wouldn't necessarily try and use a theory uh, that, that aliens are responsible for under collection if there was no way of, or angels, aliens, whatever, if there was no way of actually collecting data about your purported theory. Okay. Um, so that that's on the empirical side. And then we turn our attention to the fourth step of our four-step process, which is question everything. Question the model that you're using. Question previous research. Question the analysis the IRS has done. Uh, sapreade, uh, Latin, uh, dare to know. And so the, the one of the things you don't see in the management literature at all is self-critique. I mean, what are, what are some of the uh, downsides of using a Six Sigma approach in order to assess collection rates among various departments or regions of the, the tax collection agency? Uh, and it's this fourth step which is the most important and which is lacking in the management literature, partly because nobody wants to buy a model or a book that presents a solution, but then with the other hand takes the solution away again. Uh, so the writing you see, particularly in management, management models, it's very one-sided. Um, use Porter's Five Forces, use a, a balance scorecard, use Six Sigma, and this will revolutionize the way you do business. Okay, And it's going to be up to you to provide those critiques, because the author certainly will not do it for you. And so that's why it's so important to spend only 10% of your time reading and 40-50% of your time thinking, playing, critiquing. Uh, Six Sigma has numerous critiques, which I'll be happy to discuss with you in, in class if you haven't, if you're unable to figure them out uh, in the leisure of your own home. So maybe you've played with Six Sigma a little bit. 
Um, you are very attached to management theory. You believe that is the way of explaining uh, the phenomenon you see around you. And you tell me, well, Brian, uh, Six Sigma, you know, I, I've never really believed in it. It's for engineers. Uh, I think your problem is that you've chosen the wrong management model. I mean, I am a management strategy guy, theorist, uh, practitioner, whatever you want to call yourself. Okay, and you say, well, I am, I'm really a supporter of uh, competing for the future. Okay, uh, a view of organizational strategy that says that we have to allocate resources not based on the current strategic environment of the tax tax collection agency, but on the strategic environment that it wants to see five or ten years later. Okay, uh, an organization, a company, a tax collection agency has to make its own future, and it has to hire those people that aren't going to respond to today's problems, but they are going to anticipate and design collection methods in order to to make a new future, in order to encourage taxpayers to run to the tax collection agency, uh, money bags in arm, throw them on the desk and say, we've understood the national priorities, we want to use, you know, we've been influenced by this soft power wielded by the tax collection agency, and, uh, you know, you've, you've convinced us that this is the way into the future, okay? Uh, that's a slight... Uh, characterization of the, the, the models used uh, by Prahalad, but you, you, you get the main idea is that there's this management theory okay, that, that, that says how a, any organization should, should act, how it should be managed. Um, and I think it's not too far a stretch to say that management theorists working in this line would tell you, well, completely burn your Mike Sell textbook. Okay, that textbook was written for the previous generation. It, it talks about how to manage resources, how uh, efficiently, how to look at a plan and decide, okay, we need two more workers here, two less workers there. Um, it's basically a marginalist view of resource allocation. And I think this wave of management theorists said, well, we need to completely bin this, uh, this uh, old trend this marginalist way that we think about re uh, allocating resources in our organizations. Okay, we shouldn't think about marginal revenue and marginal cost. We need to think about uh, the strategic vision. Okay, we need to think, well, how are we going to maximize the amount of revenue that we collect in order to make our society as happy as possible? Well, maybe we need to put tax collectors in the businesses themselves. Or maybe we need to uh, make businessmen, members of uh, public-private partnerships with the, the, the tax collection agency. Maybe the, the, the regional tax agency needs to be governed by a board of uh, NGO representatives, business representatives. They need to think about the strategy, and once that's settled, all these organizational problems will go away. I mean, they'll run back to the various blocks you see in front of you on the slide and say, okay, we've really understood the strategic vision, and uh, adapt their organizational processes perfectly so that they're, they're not going to be any more uh, glitches or breaches between the resources that they want or need to collect and the resources they're collecting at present. So you're, you're completely enamored by this approach. 
um, you still have the same question. Okay, that, that's very important. The question is the same between the different models we're looking at. Well, why are there different collection rates? But the model that you've chosen is very different. Okay, and, and you say, well, it's because of the pressures for radical innovation inside these various departments within this organization. Okay, and that's really your model, um, and you want to apply it here. And again, we're back to this old question, well, oops, how do we measure a view of the strategic environment that has yet to be created? Um, and of course, there's ways to do that. I mean, you can go out and you can uh, give surveys to tax collectors in the local business on a scale of one to five. Please rate the extent to which you would like the IRS to participate in your uh, voluntary tax compliance decisions, things of that. But you're starting to immediately see some of the problems with testing these theories empirically. And uh, as an aside, that's one of the reasons why management theory became so popular is exactly because of its lack of, of validation. And that's why uh, the harder core social sciences have, uh, the, the, the guys in the graduate faculties have some, of the, some problems with the guys working in the professional schools and the business schools, is because many of these models which practitioners find very useful are very difficult to validate empirically. Uh, so, so it's very much a stumbling block. Am I telling you not to use management theories? Absolutely not. In my own life, I've found management theories to be far more useful than this corpus of knowledge that we've slowly been building up over time through empirical verification. Okay? Um, but what I am telling you is to be a very, very skeptical. Um, in this case, really, sapareade. I mean, really dare to know, really question, um, particularly because this model is so beguiling. Uh, I remember when it first came out, and it, it really looked like a paradigm buster in terms of management theory. Um, it, 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 this, maybe the models in the book are not relevant for our method of analysis, but the underlying intuition is something that certainly we should keep in mind is that maybe the marginalist approach to allocating resources isn't the right way of doing things. Okay? And I don't mind if you tell, well, marginal, this whole marginal idea of allocating resources is wrong. And I know throughout the whole course, some have been extremely skeptical about allocating resources by the marginal revenue, marginal utility, marginal cost principle. That's fine. It, it's, it's scholars like this, though, that tell us why, why we have this uncomfort. They provide uh, useful critiques for, for um, nervousness that we might have internally that we don't exactly know how to express. And it is a very valid critique to say, well, look, we have to rethink the entire tax collection method. It's not good enough simply to try and think about increasing tax collection rates at the margin in particular agencies. Uh, the underlying problem might, mean, might have to do more with the social contract, okay, or the dynamic between taxpayers and tax collectors. Uh, but in any case, we certainly want to do more than just add at the margin to the textbook that we have already. Uh, for those of you that are interested in this topic, there was another revolutionary management scholar at the time, uh, Michael Hammer, who talked about uh, re-engineering. Okay? And uh, those of you familiar with this literature might be tempted in the same way to say, well, 
what we need to do is we need to take this organogram you see on the slide, uh, completely trash it. Okay, erase it and start from the very beginning without any consideration of how taxes were collected in the past. And just think, if I could redesign uh, revenue collection from the basics without any impediments, what might that organogram look like? Okay, maybe it's completely flat. Maybe the blocks are not structured vertically. Maybe they're structured only horizontally. Or maybe they're structured like um, like uh, molecules, okay, that you have various departments centered around various themes in various geographical locations, and that's the end of it. And they're responsible for self-coordination without any organizational methods of coordination. It, it's entirely possible, rational, even encouraged that you think like this in this course. Um, but of course, being very skeptical and always keeping your eye toward the empirical validation of the theories that you are using at the time. But then the lawyer in you, or the lawyer in your uh, working group, they they stop you and they say, wait, uh, these management models, I mean, management is for businesses. We are talking about government. We're talking about laws. I mean, if we want the real, real explanation for risks of non-collection, we have to look at administrative law because that that is the thing that defines how these various executive agencies work. Um, all this Michael Hammer and Prahalad and all these guys, it's not relevant to the government because an agency manager can't just ditch this huge corpus of administrative regulation and uh, run the agency however they, they see fit. And so the lawyer in you says, well, uh, all variance in agency outcome has to come from variance in the input, which is basically those administrative regulations. Okay? There's either a problem in the way that legislation is being translated into a very specific regional level, department level uh, regulation, okay, or rules, or there's a problem in the way those rules are being ruled in terms of uh, implementation. I know that sounds slightly uh, philosophical. I mean, what I'm trying to say there is that maybe there's a problem in the way that the uh, group leader takes uh, the, the the regulation from the agency director and says, okay, you, you, and you have to uh, go out and conduct inspections from 7 to 9 in the morning, okay? Um, so we can think of that as subsidiary rulemaking or or the implementation of those agency level regulations. Now, you're sitting there thinking, well, so what's this guy talking about? He's presented a bunch of different models to me. All of them look equally valid and all of them look equally wrong. I, I, I mean, I, he's teaching this class, but I really think he's trying to confuse me. And the answer is yes, absolutely, I'm trying to confuse you. And the reason why I'm trying to confuse you is to show you the, the various possibilities, the various analytical possibilities that are out there as you define and try and answer your question. Um, and this is a method in order to help protect you against the critiques that you'll experience in your professional life. Because when you uh, take a problem and answer it according to the model of the day or the model at hand or your background training, you're always going to leave yourself open to critique. Uh, 
quite possibly sometimes to fatal critique. And uh, if I limited myself to only an economic analysis many times in working with government, it would be absolutely fatal. Um, there are political considerations which are so severe that it would simply be wrong to give an economic analysis. Okay, And so by showing you all these different possibilities, I'm hoping that you will do the same thing as you answer the questions of your professional life. Of course, you won't spend days, weeks, months doing this kind of analysis when you're working, but as you practice more and more, you're going to get faster and faster. You're going to go down your learning curve, and you'll be able to, to grab in your mind 10 or 20 models at a time, and very quickly, using your judgment, say, well, that's more valid, that's less valid, that's more valid. Okay. So that is the whole purpose. That's the whole reason why I'm giving the same question in these five or six slides and showing you completely different, often contradictory models in order to answer the question. Uh, so we return to our legal analysis and we, we, we're trying to answer the question, well, why do we have different collection rates in different departments in a uh, revenue agency? And the model we use is uh, that of regulatory quality. So we assess the regulatory quality of these various agencies, and empirically that seems fine. I mean, it's it's a normal practice to go into various departments or very various regional offices and uh, use uh, an an expert assessment. Okay, to rate on a scale between one to five, uh, the match of department level rulemaking with let's say agency level rulemaking or the match between uh, the piece of legislation, which is the thing the Parliament or Congress passed, uh, and how well that matches with the, the, the rulemaking, the regulation passed at the agency level. Okay? And if, if you're like me, at a, at a younger stage of my career, I, I would have just said, well, that's all lawyer stuff. I mean, presumably there's a lawyer somewhere working in the agency. Uh, they have a degree. They know what they're doing. I can assume that the, the lawyer drafted uh, regulations in the IRS, in the revenue agency, anywhere in government, that wonderfully matched the, the law that Congress passed. Okay? But you cannot make that assumption. Uh, lawyers are like doctors or like economists. Uh, even the guy at the last at the bottom of his class, we still call him doctor. Uh, the, the, the lawyer who drafts the proposed rule in the agency, he still might not be as good as, as you in a particular area because you have more specialist knowledge. Um, let's take the example of corruption, the area that I work in rather extensively. I mean, on average, I'll be able to identify the, the legal issues uh, in a in a particular rule more effectively than somebody with an American JD only because I'm more familiar with the topic. And any, any, any JD worth his salt will, will tell you this is true in the same way doctors, medical doctors also have specializations. Okay. Um, it's not rational that a general practitioner would know more than a ear, nose and throat doctor who is specialized in that area. Okay. So you may not assume that counsel in an agency will know more than, than you about a particular subject. You only know that he knows the corpus of law in general and the principles underlying the law that he can help you to assess the weaknesses in your analysis. 
uh, but in theory, the, the two of you would work together. So you do your um, empirical expert assessment. You find that there's differences in the quality of the regulatory instruments governing various uh, departments or areas of this revenue agency. And you say, well, ta-da, that's, that's the explanation. That's the reason for these differences in tax collection rates. And then you, you say, okay, well, it seems I found the silver bullet. And you go back to your fourth method in the assessment process, which is question everything. Have, have critical analysis. Conduct a critical analysis. And you see then, well, hold on a minute. In some ways, this, this isn't even a model. This is a, a non-model model for assessing uh, these differences in revenue collection rates. I mean, there's no real theoretical underpinning for using this method. I'm just uh, mechanically trying to assess differences in regulatory quality with uh, differences in collection rates. And you stop and you say, well, I've made these expert assessments. I, I've, I've given scores, one, two, three, four, five. But let's stop and think, what underlying intellectual model did I use in order to assign those scores? I mean, it, it, it could be if you're like me, you just draw sometimes on your own professional hunches, your own professional intuitions. You look at um, a piece of proposed rulemaking and you say, mm, there's something that just looks kind of wonky about this compared with the last one that I saw. Okay? But as you stop yourself and force yourself to think, well, what model am I using implicitly that I'm not even thinking explicitly about? when I say this proposed rule looks wonky, okay, it's that process that's going to bring to, that's going to bubble up to the front of your mind very clearly these Im implicit w uh, methods of analysis that you're using. I mean, you are absolutely using a model in order to assess regulatory quality, except you're not aware of it. And so this is the, the, the part of the process where you really stop yourself and say, look, let me, let me uh, draw out using uh, circles and arrows the underlying model that I didn't even know I was necessarily using. Wow, okay, that was a lot of, that was a lot of uh, intellectual discussion. Uh, now I, I fear it's your turn. Um, well, I fear and I rejoice at the fact that it's, it's your turn. Uh, I've shown you uh, this process for one particular case this week, other cases in the previous weeks, uh, but showing you isn't going to help you. Um, I mean, you, it's like a Hollywood picture. You're going to sit there and say, wow, how interesting. Isn't he so clever to use all these management models and uh, derive conclusions and critique them? Uh, he's fancy. I wish I was that fancy. That's, that's not going to help you master the skills of this course. Instead, you've got to practice for yourself. Uh, take other readings and go through the same approach. Um, I've put a screenshot on this slide of another reading uh, from the upcoming week that we'll be discussing, Fiscal Federalism Dimensions of Tax Reform in Developing Countries. And your goal now is basically to look through this and do the same thing we did for the U.S. case. Do the same thing we did for the U.K. case. Uh, the same thing we did for Georgia, for Turkey. Um, and I won't tell you any more because hopefully that process is relatively clear in your mind now. But if you don't do it, you're not going to know how to do it. Uh, that's how it works. Uh, in this course, as I said in the previous slides, and I'll repeat again, 
I'm a guide. I'm a mentor. I'm here to guide you. I can't show you how to do this analysis because, as you've seen, there's an infinite number of possible analyses. Um, but I'm. This course is an opportunity for you to get some of the mentoring, some of the one-to-one -one contact that maybe you longed for a bit in your undergraduate and graduate education in very large courses. Um, and so I'm hoping this is a time when very individualized training will help you acquire skills that you wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity to acquire. Uh, I can't tell you how to use these skills in some way. I can only show you. And in 99% of the cases, the only way I can show you is by you actually showing me. Uh, so with, with all of that kind of mechanical baggage out of the way, let's turn our attention to the final part of our empirical discussion for this week. While still continuing to talk about empirical methods, let us turn our attention now a little bit to uh, data collection. How do we test uh, the models and theories that we've developed uh, when answering a particular question in this course? Uh, from the class discussion that we've had so far, uh, you will intuit that there are two main methods of uh, collecting and using these data. The first method, of course, is to take the data that you're given, either in the case or data that are relatively easily publicly available. So for example, we've seen data in many of the budgets that we've looked at. Um, we've seen data in financial statements. Uh, so those are data that are out there. And we said, well, find the rates of change, find the ratios, um, or find correlations with other data. Uh, we were looking, I think, at the Turkey case study. And I was telling to look at trends from the broader society using world development indicators as a way of explaining um, uh, budgetary allocations in, in the budget that we were looking at. Okay, so that's one approach of uh, collecting and using data, is to take the data that are there. The other method is the method that I would like to uh, discuss right now. And that method is going out and collecting the data yourself. Uh, of course, when you hear that you have to go out and collect your own data, this is very scary. Uh, especially for uh, class participants who have never gone out and collected data. I know at many of the uh, other universities that I've been at, um, uh, master's students are not allowed to get a degree unless they have some fieldwork component, unless they've actually gone out and collected fieldwork for themselves. Uh, so I would highly encourage you to at least understand the practice if you don't have to do it now particularly as during your working career, it's very, very likely that you will have to have your subordinates go out and collect data in order to answer the managerial questions that you want answered. So let's discuss how to uh, think about the data, the data collection exercise in order to answer these types of managerial questions. You remember that we were talking about uh, tax gaps in the UK context. And I showed a very brief table here about um, uh, tax years and sample sizes. And I told you that in theory, you could, uh, you could block the sample and then make estimates about uh, the probability of bright young taxpayers not paying their taxes, finance directors not paying their taxes, uh, the amount of that underpayment, et cetera. Okay. 
And I told you uh, rather cavalierly, please go ahead, uh, make whatever estimates you think. Uh, don't panic too much because you'll have a chance to assess whether those Bayesian estimates are right or wrong. So this is the part where you do that actual assessment. And you're thinking, okay, I, I've blocked the data. Now how do I go out and, and assess the, the extent to which my probability estimate was, was right or wrong? And uh, the answer is, you look at those groups that are most interesting to you, of course. Uh, uh, in, the, in the case of theory, we said, well, uh, these young bankers and finance directors, those are interesting groups to look at. Those were the blockings that were suggested by theory. Okay? And, and then you ask, well, how many observations should I collect? Uh, and there's there's always there's this urban myth that large sample sizes are good, and it's a myth which is very hard to dispel, uh, partly because it serves as such a, a good rule of thumb for people who are not very familiar with statistics. Uh, for someone who's never taken a statistics course, and you want to make sure they don't screw up the analysis, you tell them uh, go out and get a large sample because large sample sizes are good. Okay. Uh, there's lots of exceptions where you don't need a large sample size, and in fact, a large sample size can be very detrimental given the cost of collecting the sample. Uh, and it's particularly that trade-off that I want to talk about here so that you're familiar with it, and that way in case one of your experts comes to you later and says, look, we sampled 12 people, and this is our estimate, and um, there is a uh, range of uncertainty of only 1% around this estimate and you sit and you say, well, 12 people, that goes against everything I learned. Uh, I, I want to tell you that doesn't go against everything you learned. Uh, let's think about two groups for the purposes of this uh, illustrative exercise. Okay, Let's say that you are sampling from a group of bankers who are shown in the upper right-hand corner. Okay, They're doing what bankers do best, which is wearing fancy clothes and hobnobbing and garden parties and things like this. Uh, it's, just to make the presentation a bit more humorous, less boring. And in general, when you have a population that's relatively homogenous, when you ask them questions like, uh, oh dear sir, how much, how, how often do you uh, underdeclare paying taxes? Okay, uh, you've declared your taxes these last 100 years. How many times did you uh, cheat on your taxes? And he tells you, oh, well, young man, you know, I've uh, cheated maybe uh, seven times out of the last uh, century. Then your probability estimate is 7% using the Popperian method, okay, using observed frequencies in order to guess uh, the probability by which a member of that, that segment of the population underdeclare, okay. Now, in a population which is homogenous, you go to uh, the next lady and you ask, oh, uh, uh, dear lady, how much have you, uh, what's the probability of you under-declaring your taxes? She says, oh, you're 7%. Uh, out of the last century, you know, I'm 102 years old and I've only under-declared uh, roughly seven times. Okay. You say, oh, okay, how interesting. You go to another randomly sampled member of that segment and you ask them the same question. They say, oh, 7%. Okay. Even by this point, assuming that you've used complete randomization, you start to see that your parameter estimates are relatively stable. 
Okay, and I'm very careful to use the term that your sample was was got at random. Okay, that you didn't go to a lady and then choose the guy next to him and then walk over in the garden party to another friendly looking bloke. If you do that, the 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 sample's not random. Okay, but we know that if you've taken a random sample. Of a, of a sample of a population, that sample is going to accurately represent the larger population. Okay? And so if you've sampled from the members of this garden party uh, beforehand, maybe you uh, used a random number generator uh, like I do when I'm uh, asking students questions in, in our lectures. Okay? If you sampled them completely at random, you can be relatively sure that the sample will reflect this larger group of bankers in the strata that you're targeting. Okay. Now, the, 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 the thing I want to stress is that if you're out there doing the sample and you see your parameter estimates are all stable, uh, you've gotten through part of your sample, and it's extremely costly to continue sampling these guys, uh, let's say because the cost of admission to garden parties is a thousand pounds per admission, okay. um, then in this case there are advantages to reducing the sample size. Okay. And if even one banker perfectly represented all bankers, if he was a, a walking microcosm and had perfect information on all possible bankers, in such a case, uh, a sample size of one would be completely sufficient. Okay. Uh, but of course, uh, that's more a theoretical explanation than a practical uh, thing. And so that's why we generally encourage sample sizes to be relatively large. Uh, which is shown by the picture below. Okay, let's say we're looking at industrial workers, and uh, there's much more heterogeneity between uh, between these workers. They come from different parts of the country. They have different values. Uh, they have varying income levels between them, uh, so that the machine operator might earn much more than uh, the manual worker assembling things on a line. And we ask them, oh, what's, what's your uh, probability for not paying taxes? Or if you had the chance to cheat on your tax form next year, um, what's the probability that you give yourself that you would cheat on that declaration? Okay. Or out of 100 people, out of 100 colleagues that you know from your own experience that you can talk about, what percentage of them underdeclare on their taxes? Okay. So you run these kinds of questions and you see lots of variation. Okay, one guy says, well, uh, amongst my strata, 5% would cheat. And another chap says, well, in my strata, 45% would cheat. Then it's quite clear that this very, you, you have so much more variation as you're trying to estimate this parameter, you're going to have to go out and collect much more data. Okay, uh, as you collect more data, the, 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 the certainty, the, the firmness of that estimate, it's going to increase. Your your parameter estimates are going to become firmer as you start asking more people. They're going to become better, more reliable. There's less of a margin of uncertainty in this type of situation, assuming that you have uh, defined the segment correctly. Because it's entirely possible that the variation you see in the segment reflects either a variation in the underlying parameter, namely people cheat uh, by differing amounts depending on the day, depending on factors you haven't taken into account. That's one possibility. Or you've misdefined the segment so that you're actually uh, capturing two populations. I mean, maybe machine workers uh, 
all cheat 45% and all assembly line workers cheat uh, 5%. And so by combining or mingling this segment, uh, you've created this very unstable parameter estimate that you wouldn't have if you had defined the segment correctly. Okay, And part of that you won't know in theory. I mean, I, I gave you this Zen ex explanation earlier and said, well, you have to define your block size uh, such that it's the best block size you can define. And in theory, that's quite okay, but many times you don't know this until you're actually in the field and you see these machine workers and you see the assembly line workers and you go back and you say, well, I really messed that up. Okay, And there's two remedies for this. The, the first remedy is hopefully you've done this uh, during your pilot survey. Uh, it's a small survey that you collect in order to make sure you've defined your blocks, that you've defined your survey, you've defined your questions, that that everything will go smoothly. That's that's roughly the point of a pilot survey. It's nice and cheap um, and relatively effective. The other way is that you you don't do a pilot survey for whatever reason. You go out, you find that the, the survey was misspecified. You go, oops, I uh, confused the machine workers and the assembly line workers. And so you either discard the questions uh, where you made that mistake and only include the data with a new question or you throw the whole survey out and start again depending on how serious the the misdefinition the misdefinition was okay um, so you see then that, that this is a discussion about sampling and data collection in order to estimate in order to uh, collect empirical val validation for some of the assumptions that you made previously now I wanted to talk about garden partiers and factory line workers to help develop the intuition as you start thinking about sampling within a budget. Okay, uh, let's assume that you have particular hypotheses about uh, budgetary allocations. Okay, you think that uh, expenditure on education items is much higher relative to health items and relative to a, a third expenditure category, for example, okay? And you want to test this, and you have a big old budget of hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of, uh, of observations, of recordings, of, uh, a let's call them numbers, because it depends on the specific uh, instance, it depends on the specific budget or financial report that you're looking at. Okay. Now, the same logic applies in your empirical test of the budget or financial statement that applies to the garden party and factory line that we were discussing previously. Namely, you're not going to try and import uh, 100, 1,000, uh, 10 million observations and conduct your statistical analysis. You are going to step away from the computer and draw circles draw squares, segment, uh, calculate probabilities in your mind first, and then sample from those budgetary categories or those uh, financial statement categories with theory as a guide. Okay, So out of, uh, let's say, 200 uh, possible budgetary categories and subcategories, you might choose 15. Okay, In theory, you would define the sample size before you started sampling. And that, that's the best practice, and anybody who is uh, a statistician who is hearing this, uh, don't take it that I'm telling you otherwise. Okay, But practically, 
sometimes if you if you have a one hour deadline or something and you have to cut corners you're going to find yourself starting the sample seeing how uh, stable your parameter estimates are and then you're going to move on or not because the most valuable resource that you will find in your working time is not going to be money it's going to be time okay uh, so sampling is good use the theory to guide your sampling of course use uh, standard practice in terms of, of sampling but when push comes to shove choose those methods that give you what you want as cheaply and effectively as possible. This seems like an excellent uh, point to start introducing some of the concepts related to internal audits that we will be discussing later in the course. Uh, field work, going out and collecting data, this is one of the core elements of any in internal auditor's practice and therefore the sooner that you see these concepts for the first or second time, the sooner you will be able to internalize them when you see them for the 12th or 13th time later in the course. So uh, with this, let's discuss sampling uh, from an academic perspective and sampling from an internal audit perspective. Okay. Now when I say internal audit, I, I want to be very careful about what I'm saying because many people think they understand what internal audit is but in fact they they don't really understand uh, and I'll of course define these terms more rigorously later but just to give you a first view at internal audit okay internal auditors are not necessarily the guys who plow through all the financial records and look for the guy stealing the money okay uh, they're not the inspectors that go around looking for evil people in the organization Okay, that is an aspect of internal audit, but um, fraud audit is actually a very small part of internal audit. I mean, when you think of an internal auditor, you should your mind should uh, go much more toward management consultants, McKinsey, this kind of uh, approach, rather than Inspector Clouseau and uh, busting the bad guy uh, uh, approach. Yeah, uh, it's less toward finding Jean Valjean and uh, much more toward uh, cracking the interesting, uh, well, management challenge. Okay, uh, internal audit is basically about assessing risk in an organization and creating recommendations which minimize that risk and maximize the organize the organization's value. Okay, what do I mean by that? And um, the best thing to do is to give a very quick, maybe story from my own experience, so that you can feel what an internal auditor does, rather than look at an abstract slide. Okay, so as an internal auditor in customs, in my previous experience, I uh, you go into the office every day, and you know that the director will be worried about certain types of risk. Okay, what is the risk of us not collecting uh, all the revenue we're supposed to collect for this this quarter? Or what is the risk of someone hacking into the the database and stealing financial information? What is the risk that our customs officers won't know uh, procedures correctly and uh, somebody who's broken the customs law will be able to get away uh, scot-free because our, our officers weren't trained well enough? Okay? Those are the types of risk that we think about when we think about internal audit. 
Okay. Those are risks which can negatively impact the performance of, in this case, the custom service. So what do we do? We go and, and we find out what are the, the potential risks. Okay. What does management see as the biggest risks in this customs agency? We then go back and with the big whiteboard, do exactly the same kind of thing that we've been discussing all term term long. We sketch out models, we sketch out theories. Okay, well they're they're worried about uh, the risk of being undertrained. How do we think about uh, training? Uh, what are the potential risks? Why does undertraining occur? And how might we confront that problem? Uh, again, it, it's very much this kind of open open skies thinking that we've been discussing all term all term long. So then with our theories, with our assumptions about training in the customs agency, we'd then go out and test those theories. Okay, well, we think that uh, there's a big risk of uh, lacking skills uh, when they inspect uh, luggage okay, at an airport. And so we'd go out and we collect uh, data uh, about the way they conduct these inspections. Exactly the same way we are talking about in our tax gap analysis uh, in the, the, the previous case we were discussing before. Okay? Uh, internal audit, it, it works exactly this way. The whole goal is not to find the one guy who doesn't know so much about uh, the training that he was supposed to do, okay? uh, who doesn't know so much about customs procedures. Okay? Our goal isn't to go out and bust the bad guy. Instead, it's to collect data and say, well, well, look, uh, not many people know uh, the correct procedures. They had they'd been trained on this four times. Let's look at how the trainers are doing training, or let's look at how the the customs officers were assessed. Okay, and how do we theorize about the way they learn? How do we theorize about their assessments? What recommendations can we make that will improve their performance? Okay, and in theory. Each recommendation should have uh, an estimated benefit and an estimated cost. So we say, well, uh, we found that the trainers were using uh, lecture methods and multiple choice exams when they should have used essays and uh, more uh, skills application. Okay, we estimate that putting in a program like that would cost four hundred million dollars, and the benefit in terms of in increased inspection quality would be seven. $700 million. Okay? So uh, all recommendations are geared at improving value. They're not geared at uh, increasing regulations, busting the bad guy, making the custom service a more difficult place to work in. Uh, recommendations, the, the auditors or internal auditors are ultimately management consultants just like other branches of management consulting. Okay. And I'm talking uh, very specifically about performance audit and I'm talking about compliance audit. Now I wouldn't want you to get the impression that auditors don't at all investigate frauds or uh, find where the money's gone missing. Uh, they absolutely do. Uh, when, when you have an insurance, what's called an assurance engagement, okay. in other words, they're looking at the financial statements to make sure that what they reported is actually what they spent internal auditors will go and they will uh, trace receipts and they will follow up. That's absolutely an important part of internal audit and I don't want to minimize it. But on the other hand, I want you to have a very good feel for what I consider to be the more proactive, the more productive side of internal audit, which is working with managers in order to 
use all these great theories that you're learning from courses like this in order to go out and make the world a better real place. Okay. Um, now let us think about the differences between academic research and internal audit now that you have this background a little bit. And in some ways you can see that, that both have the same objectives, okay, uh, to, to go out and map the process, to, to think, well, what, what, what's the organization doing? I mean, how are they collecting revenues? How are they spending money? Um, apply theory to, to understand the world around them. Okay, I talked about theories of human resource training uh, previously. I could have talked about um, in organizational politics. I could have very easily said that we want to look at how organizational politics affects the way customs officers do inspections. Well, what do we know about organizational politics? That's all theory. I mean, you have to take some level of abstraction and come up with hypotheses before you can go out into the field. Uh, it's not sufficient to go and ask a bunch of people, oh, hi, uh, please tell me, do you think organizational politics are a problem, yes or no? Um, if it were that easy, why would you need to get a master's degree or a professional a qualification? Uh, any assessment that starts from asking a bunch of people what their opinion is it inherently starts from a flawed proposition. I mean, you have a PhD, you have a master's for a reason, because you have internalized the models which will help you assess risks more accurately than just asking some random member of the organization what his opinions are. Just like a medical doctor. Uh, if he wants to diagnose cancer, he's not going to go and ask the patient's family what they think the problem is. Uh, and I, I fear that in America, American policymaking circles, they've gone too far into participatory evaluation, into participatory methods of uh, assessment. Okay, You're an expert for a reason because you have expert knowledge. I wouldn't be so afraid of that expert knowledge. Okay, You're in the field, you collect data, and you, you use your skills of critical analysis in order to assess whether your theory and data match. Uh, certainly at, at the stage of critical analysis, that's a very important uh, area to bring in the opinions of organizational members, to bring in the opinions of civil society, whoever. Okay? Um, but I, those opinions should color your analysis. They should influence you. They shouldn't be determinant in guiding your own analysis. Now, let's think about the differences between uh, academics and internal audit. Uh, the whole point of the academy is to build this core of knowledge. It is to take a discipline that we're reasonably sure about and to make marginal increases. Okay? It is to expand the frontier of knowledge in a particular discipline, management, economics, uh, the, the arts, uh, music. Okay? Um, but it's theory, it's things that we can all draw upon. Uh, internal audit, on the other hand, it's very focused on what we call the engagement. Okay, Not engagement like uh, pre-marriage, but engagement like uh, the job that they've hired us to do. Okay, We're there in order to uh, make sure that the benefits of our advice are higher than the cost of the advice and that the overall risk has uh, decreased because of our recommendations. Full stop. That's it. Those are the terms of our engagement. Anything else is out, basically outside of our scope. Okay. 
Um, I'm going to describe this process to you in a bit more detail in the future, uh, but for now I wanted to, to focus a bit on how this common tool of fieldwork, uh, data collection, is applied in the types of things we're doing in this course in the academic realm and how they're applied in the internal audit realm. So now that we've discussed a little bit about fieldwork and about uh, defining an empirical problem, let's return to one of the, uh, the assignments from the syllabus, namely the Uzbek case. I know that several of you have asked how I might tackle a case like this, and that's the reason why I chose to address it on these slides. Uh, in lecture, I can, that's my time when I get feedback from you, when I assess what you've understood and what you've not understood and that tells me what to lecture you about basically in the future. So, uh, as you remember from the syllabus, uh, the basic exercise was here is a bank project uh, aimed at improving the capacity of the Uzbek government's treasury function, okay, the budgeting function. Uh, is it good or is it bad? Uh, how do we assess that? And you remember from the exercise, I didn't want the actual assessment. I just wanted a discussion of the way that you would conduct that assessment. And so now is a chance for you to look at one possible way that I might choose and compare it with the possible ways that you might have chosen. Of course, keeping in mind that there is no perfect way. There's only different possibilities. So you've probably come up with several approaches to conducting this assessment, and we can now uh, compare your possibilities with my possibilities and look at the overall approach. Okay, um, we start the case analysis by by emphasizing that the bank approach is completely and totally hopelessly useless. Um, we have this results framework here. That, uh, that bank staff are supposed to use in order to decide whether the project uh, succeed in it, succeeded in its goals or not. And so let's, let's read uh, at least the first line in order to, to figure out what their assessment framework is. Okay? Uh, PDO, improve transparency and accountability of public finances, strengthen institutional capacity to use public resources more efficiently, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so that's, that's the objective from what I've understood, outcome indicator. A transparent budgetary process with medium-term focus is supported by comprehensive and reliable information from the Treasury. Uh, well, that tells me not very much, does it? And so we look at the outcome information. Okay, well, how are we supposed to, <clears throat> what kind of data will tell us if we've supposedly achieved this outcome or not? Well, we're quantifying success and uh, assessing readiness to proceed with system implementation, progress in process used to uh, assess technical assistance requirements. Okay, well, the good thing about that last phrase is that I can use that on every possible project everywhere in the world. <clears throat> it's sufficiently ambiguous that, that nobody will object to that, uh, that method of assessing performance. Now, in a highly politicized environment where the government has to approve a uh, method of assessment, I can see why uh, the World Bank might choose this method of expressing its evaluation. Okay? I'm assuming that 
the Uzbek policy environment isn't the easiest one to work in. And therefore, this is not a critique of either the bank or the Uzbek government. I simply want to point out that there are cir circumstances where an inefficient um, mechanism of evaluation is actually the most efficient mechanism of evaluation. Okay, That is taking into account the particular institutional constraints. And notice when I use the jargon, institutional constraints, I always back up and try and tell very specifically what I mean. And I mean, there's a guy who's going to get pissed off in an agency and he's going to complain. And I'm sitting in Washington having a beautiful life in the World Bank. And suddenly I get fired because some guy 3,000 miles away complained about my method of assessment. Okay, That's what I mean when I say this jargon, institutional assessment. And hopefully one of the skills that you will develop during this course is to take a lot of the jargon that you see from the readings and translate it into stuff that makes sense to guys like you and me, normal human beings, okay? Guys that do not have to worry so much about the politics around what they write on a piece of paper. Okay, that's the benefit of working in the academy is that we're supposed to be freer to tell things directly than in a... In an, in a government organization where things have to be told certain ways for particular reasons related to risk aversion, related to politics, which we have discussed in the previous lectures. Okay, So for the purposes of our class and this exercise, the bank performance uh, metric, it's completely useless. So how do you go about thinking of an, of an alternative metric that we can use together? Well, remember in class we said that we want objectives that are smart. Okay, um, and at this point, you'll flip to your notes and look at what SMART is because you won't remember. And I'm purposely not telling you uh, not only to be naughty, which of course I am by nature, but also because when you flip through your notes, uh, the angst in doing this will burn in your brain a bit more what SMART stands for. Okay, <clears throat> but let's assume that you're listening and you're too lazy to do that and um, and you want me to, to put it in another way anyway. And the, the most intuitive way to think about this is the five W's that we were talking about again in lecture. Okay? Think about who is involved, okay? what are they trying to do, where are they trying to do this, when are they trying to do it, why and how. Okay? So we have this outcome indicator, uh, promote transparent budgetary processes, uh, quantify success and assess readiness, proceed with system of implementation. So then it's up to us to think about, well, who? Who, are, who exactly are we talking about here? Well, clearly we're talking about people in the Uzbek Ministry of Finance. I think that's rather obvious. Um, <clears throat> what are they, what are we looking at? Uh, hopefully we're looking at budgetary allocations. Okay, we're looking at uh, 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 estimated revenues to be collected, taxes that uh, they expect to collect. Uh, money that they expect to spend on hospital beds, on roads, on things like that. Okay, uh, When, of course, in this budget cycle. How, and that's probably the most important question here. I mean, they want to increase the transparency of the budgetary process. They want to quantify success in readiness to proceed. Well, how pragmatically are they going to do that? And you stop and you think for a minute and you say, well, there's really only two ways they can do that either internally or externally. 
mean, there, there's really no third option. I mean, either it's the guys who are, are typing in the information or writing it down on paper, um, if we remember the example I gave in the last lectures, okay? It's either these guys who have to decide, oh, yes, yes, I got the date on time. They were quite okay. I forwarded them on efficiently. Uh, I put a little check mark in the box to say that uh, I passed on the data when I should have passed on the data, etc. okay? So the, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that you have an independent auditor or uh, uh a late teenager who is uh, getting his undergraduate degree fly in uh, working with a large American NGO and he's sitting there and he's assessing them on a scale of one to five and he's saying, oh dear chappies, okay, uh, let's find out how transparent and accountability your budget is. He gives a bunch of scores that then go into a uh, IMF ROSC, okay, report on observance and standards and codes. Uh, that's another possible method of organizing this assessment. And that's basically it. I mean, there, there's no real other third option here, okay? So just by sitting down and thinking about very practically the who, what, where, when, why, and how, the, the, the assessment methodology you might use, you, you, you reduce this complexity, you reduce this enormous amount of abstraction into something which is very easy to deal with, okay? And so that's, that's one way of looking at this question. The other way of looking at the question is to think, well, what's the main problem? What's the main question that this project is trying to answer? I mean, what is the concern of the government and the bank uh, in order to finance this project? And at the end of the day, uh, I think we can agree that they want to know where the money went. Okay, And they created different project components uh, based on their assessment of the extent to which that would help the money go to the right place. Okay. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that they are funding um, activity code 2B. Okay. In terms of U.S. dollars, that is where they are putting the most emphasis in monetary terms of this project. Uh, so in theory, it's this subcomponent 2B, which is addressing some various, very serious or a very expensive issue that um, the bank staff and uh, Uzbek authorities want to tackle. Okay. Now again, notice I was very careful in my analytical thinking. Analytics, break down the problem. Expenditure on uh, subcomponent 2B is high for two reasons. First, because they thought it was important. B, they thought it was expensive. Okay. And so this has cleared out most of the complexity already in terms of trying to decide, well, what's the important issue we want to look at here? Uh, if you go to the project itself, you'll see that the emphasis, the, the high emphasis on project, on project component 2B stems from it being a very expensive component, not necessarily that it's very effective, uh, in, or, or, or addresses a very important priority, at least in my opinion. Uh, but again, that's where this whole exercise of developing your judgment comes into focus. Okay, so we see that one possible way of assessing uh, this project is to look at the various components, to look at expenditure on various components, and then assess to what extent those various components match or jibe with uh, the underlying objectives of the project. Okay, and 
So, so that's relatively clear. Uh, again, to give another uh, plea for using Excel, you see this bar chart in front of you, and it's very easy to see how uh, proposed resources will be used under the bank project. Okay. Of course, the bank doesn't give this graph. I had to make it myself. And it, it, it's by using Excel, uh, by having some fluency with Excel, that we can make these kinds of charts very quickly and easily. So again, I admonish you to brush up on your Excel skills. Okay, so that's that's one possible way of looking at this analysis. The other possible way is to open the project proposal and see right at the very beginning that they want to create what is basically a multi-year performance-based budget. Okay, uh, they say it in more or less clear terms throughout the project proposal, but my speed reading uh, interpretation of this bank project is that they want to create the same kind of thing that we already saw in El Paso. Okay, So you'll want to use your, your, your synthetic thinking skills and your imagination at this point. We saw uh, a budget, which is roughly what they want to do in Uzbekistan. What's it going to take for the Uzbek Ministry of uh, Finance in order to get their budget looking roughly like the budget we saw in El Paso? Okay, so immediately you're starting to form links in your mind between uh, different course materials, and you might even start to imagine what it is to be a, a day in the life of the guy in El Paso who was putting this budget together. Okay, he was uh, asking people, uh, fire department, oh, well, uh, how many fires are there now? How many fires do we want to decrease for next year? Okay. Uh, how do we have to redeploy uh, fire engines in order to get that objective? Uh, sitting down, doing calculations, doing a lot of thought. I mean, you can, see, you can see from the El Paso budget that there was not a lot of mechanization and there was a relatively large amount of thought relative to the Uzbek proposal. I mean, if you look at the bank proposal, it's mostly computers, it's a lot of resources, it's a bit of training. But it's much more difficult to see, uh, well, thought, for lack of a better word, Uzbek uh, Ministry of Finance officials sitting down all day with whiteboards and, oh, yes, dear chappies, you know, uh, what do you think uh, Ministry of Environment should do this year? Oh, yeah, it should do this. Okay, how do we credi credibly communicate that to the society? I don't get this feeling from the project that, this is what they're, what, what they're planning on doing. But I do get the feeling from the El Paso budget, this is quite clearly what, what the El Paso uh, city uh, administration was doing. Okay, so now there's this tension in my mind uh, from what I've imagined from El Paso and what is proposed in Uzbekistan. And immediately it's that kind of tension, it's that um, dissonance, if you will, between those two visions, between my imagination, which is going to drive this assessment. So we started a new case, and we'll go through uh, the steps, the four steps of our analysis, one step at a time. Uh, I'll repeat my question from the syllabus. Uh, the World Bank has done a reform of Uzbekistan's public financial management system. Their evaluation arm calls you in, in in order to do an independent evaluation. They specifically want a statistical test of the program's effectiveness. What do you propose? No need to actually do the test, just describe how they would be designed. Okay? And this is a broad question like all the questions you get. 
Um, you might be an independent auditor on this project, and you want to, you want to, to sit down and think, well, how would I design a test of the effectiveness of this program? And you need to think about it now because you need to ask the client for the money to do this work. Okay, uh, auditors are funded by clients, and we have to go there and we have to say, oh, dear client, please give us the money so that we can assess and evaluate you. I mean, nobody's going to be happy uh, being assessed, being evaluated, being, being critiqued, unless you can show them that they're going to get lots of wonderful things from this assessment. So that's basically our, our objective here. How do we create a nice assessment that will make them want to pay our salary, that will make uh, Uzbek government better off, uh, make the bank better off, and make our own bank account better off. Okay. So now we have our own question. Okay, well, more specifically, to what extent has the bank's $14 million project helped the Uzbek government use medium-term policy goal-based budget? Uh, Notice that I've really focused in on the five W's. I mean, what, where, who, how much money are we talking about? What physical thing that you can plonk on a desk are we talking about? We are not talking about an abstract principle. To what extent did they promote the accountability of the budget? Okay, Or to what extent have they improved the effectiveness of their budget-making process? Okay. These are well too abstract in order to carry out any kind of evaluation, and in my opinion, even to carry out a project, but there you have it. So uh, we know then when we're talking about a performance-based budget, we're looking at policy goals, policy objectives, and we're trying to figure out the extent to which they've, they've assigned resources in the budget in order to achieve those goals. So. Uh, we're sitting 4,000 kilometers away, and uh, we don't speak Uzbek, uh, we don't speak Russian necessarily. Uh, we have to do this evaluation because it's a sign, because uh, the money's already in the bank account. What do we do? Well, we need an assessment of Uzbekistan's policy priorities. Where do we go? Well, my instinct, if I only had two minutes to do this, this exercise, was to go to the president's policy announcements, to go to the official government website and look at the policy priorities for the government in whatever planning period they use. Uh, some governments use a one-year period, some use a five-year period. Uh, you have some governments, particularly in the old days, that used to have these brilliant 30-year uh, planning strategy documents. Okay. Um, for our purposes, the time frame isn't very important. What's more important is that you go to the government website, you look for the policy objectives. Okay, In my case, uh, we see a number of pronouncements by the Uzbek president. And I went there because from my previous uh, learning, I know that his pronouncements are relatively determinate in deciding policy priorities of the government. Okay, In other in other countries, you will want to look more at parliamentary debate than you will want to look at presidential pronouncements. Uh, but from my own extremely, extremely, extremely limited view of Uzbekistan, uh, knowing almost nothing about the country, I went to focus on the president. Okay. Now, I found several uh, policy priorities. I then went to the budget and looked at the budget to see, well, how many resources did they assign in expenditure categories which, which roughly corresponded to what the president said he thought was important. Okay, 
And that's how I would do this kind of assessment, is that I would look to see maybe now uh, how well resources were allocated to these pronouncements in 2011, as opposed to how well they corresponded to these pronouncements before the project, let's say in 2005. Okay. Assuming, of course, the project went ahead. I'm assuming the project uh, went ahead. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't be uh, doing an evaluation of its effectiveness, clearly. Okay. So for the, the purposes of this case exercise, you can naturally assume that the project was implemented. And, of course, that you don't have an evaluation report. And even if you did have an evaluation report, I would certainly want to design this before I looked at another person's evaluation methodology. Uh, partly partly because of my own arrogance and partly for purely uh, 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 practical reasons. I mean, on the arrogant side, uh, we tend to think that, that we're smarter than the next guy. Uh, it's not just me. I think it's everybody. And uh, I mean, doctors will always double check symptoms. They'll never take uh, results of another doctor at face value, okay? So that's that's on the hubris side, if you will. Uh, the other side of the argument is that uh, different experts will have different approaches, different ways of seeing the world. Uh, as I've been stressing to you throughout the course, the, the method I tell you might not be the method or the method that you choose, and that's the reason why we do things in groups, why we consult is because different auditors, different management consultants will have entirely different approaches to tackling exactly the same problem. And you don't want to be influenced by another expert's methodology as you go to design your own evaluation. Okay? Um, so certainly poke around the budget, see what it reflects in terms of political priorities. Uh, also you might want to see if the budget talks about more than one year. As you, uh, as you recall, your question, as it appears on this slide, uh, talks about a medium-term budget policy framework. So a very simple thing is just to see if they talk about more than one year. Okay? Uh, so we defined some of the issues, but we haven't yet talked about our statistical test. Now, how might you design uh, an empirical test uh, empirical meaning fieldwork and then statistical meaning taking the data and crunching them in Statistica, okay, or Excel, preferably Excel. How would you design such a test? Uh, you recall from our discussion of fieldwork, uh, we are talking about uh, random sampling, okay. The president has made lots of policy declarations in the past year, even more in the last 10 years if we want to compare a pre-bank project and post-bank project. Okay, If you try and analyze the fit between every policy announcement and every budgetary allocation, you'll go crazy and eventually uh, shoot yourself. Well, that's not sure, but it's a possible implication of the uh, comprehensive uh, approach to fieldwork. Instead, what you might, what you'll want to do is you'll want to uh, do a stratified random sample of these political pronouncements. Okay, and notice how I inject the word stratified here. Not all policy pronouncements will have the same weight. Okay, will have the same analytical value to you. Some policy pronouncements, uh, for example, we should uh, develop closer ties with uh, Tajikistan. 
that will have a different weight to you or they will fall in a different category in your mind than a policy pronouncement of uh, we will lower taxes in order to facilitate trade or a uh, government of Uzbekistan is committed to w, uh, WTO membership. Okay, Different policy pronouncements might have differing degrees of credibility in your mind. Uh, the, just the way the, the speech went, uh, the emphasis given by the, uh, the, the government press service, that might suggest to you that some political priorities are more priority than other political priorities. So that's why I'm saying that you'll want to stratify, okay? and, and you won't look at all of these pronouncements, of course. Then within each strata, of course, you'll want to randomly sample depending on the, the volatility or the importance of that segment. What do I mean? I mean that if you take those policy pronouncements which are relatively anodyne, uh, the government believes that women's rights are important. That's not the perfect uh, example for this country. Uh, the government believes that uh, the environment is important. Okay. Uh, political pronouncements like that are more politics than actual policy. And therefore, we'd probably want to sample less from those. Um, we would look at their translation into the budget. And if our parameter estimate was relatively stable, we wouldn't spend very much time analyzing that section of our research project. Okay. Um, let's take another area of policy. Uh, the government of Uzbekistan is dedicated to privatizing 100% of all resources next year, for example. Okay. Uh, policy pronouncements which will have a very important, profound impact on the structure of the Uzbek economy, society, and thus tax collection. Okay. It's pronouncements like this that we're really interested in in order to assess how effective the bank project is. Please do not lose sight of the goal, uh, of the purpose of this exercise, is we're not trying to tell interesting things about Uzbek policymaking process. We are trying to assess the effectiveness of this bank project. So, of course, our most important strata will tell us something about the way that a policy-oriented multi-year budget has changed the way the government allocates resources. Okay, uh, You'll certainly want to trace uh, those policy pronouncements into budgetary allocations. Uh, and to the extent that those data are not available, and in my case, they weren't available at all, then we would have to do field work. Okay? Um, but it, again, we would use this stratification based on risk, okay, the risk of an impact on the bank project. That's how we would choose which institutions to go and ask questions to. Okay. So uh, it, taking the example of a 100% uh, privatization program, that would suggest a very important role for the Ministry of uh, Economy. That's certainly an institution that we would go and ask more questions to, do more field work about, uh, etc. Okay, uh, I've given a, uh, a screenshot uh, from Global Integrity, which provides one possible proxy for the effectiveness of resources, uh, in order to highlight the fact that maybe in your statistical test you don't want to do field work and you don't know anything about the budget. Instead, you are perfectly comfortable to say, well, I think broad proxies of institutional quality uh, can tell us something about the effectiveness of the bank project. 
Okay. Um, I don't have money to fly to Uzbekistan. Um, the the budgetary data aren't available online, but I, I got to write this paper by next week. What am I going to do? Okay, well, uh, there are some data available online uh, from Global Integrity about the effectiveness of government institutions, and you therefore mold the research question you're going to ask to fit the data you have available, because no data, no question. Okay, we have this data. You look at the way that the effectiveness of government institutions in Uzbekistan has changed over time, and you infer, you deduce, you hypothesize, you speculate that changes in overall government effectiveness have been reflected in the budgetary making process as well. Okay. Is that a great way of assessing uh, the bank's project? Absolutely not. It's a horrible method of assessing the bank project. Is it better than nothing? Absolutely. It's um, even working with these very limited data is much better than just speculating around and maybe reading a bank report and, and saying, well, the bank found the, the, the project was great and some guy wrote a, a glowing report in the local newspaper and therefore we can deduce that the project was effective. Okay. Uh, I would, uh, again, remember that uh, these expert assessments always hold less power. Uh, people's opinions will always, always hold less power than our own objective statistical analysis. Okay, So we do an analysis of uh, global integrity data, or we collect data uh, to the extent we can. We might uh, ring up different agencies and say, uh, a fact or fiction, true or false, you use a policy-based uh, multi-year budget. Darnyet and they tell yes, no. Uh, you record these data uh, before the project happened, after the project happened, and you compare them statistically to see if the uh, averages are too far apart, and that tells you something about the effectiveness of the bank project. Okay, Again, that's, that's a, a heck of a fudge as well, but it's better than nothing. Okay, And You'll notice I was being sloppy when I said that the, re quote, the responses are too far apart, end quote. What I actually meant from a statistical point of view is that we conduct a t-test on the parameter estimate of the uh, measured effectiveness of the bank project, the, the, whatever proxy we're using. Okay, So let's imagine that we uh, took global integrity scores from Uzbekistan before the bank project and after the bank project and we simply plotted them. Uh, I should point out uh, right now that Global Integrity doesn't offer uh, data on Uzbekistan, so if you go looking and don't find them, uh, don't come and accuse me that I'm suggesting wrong or false things to you. Okay, It's merely an illustration. So we look at the distribution of scores, uh, pre-project, post-project. We uh, look at the the estimated parameters, the average effectiveness. Uh, we look at the confidence interval of those parameter estimates. And what I mean here is, uh, let's say we have a relatively low score before the project, which you see on the slide, uh, this bell curve in red, and you see a much higher average score after the project. Okay, Those average scores don't tell us anything without knowing the spread of those data, the uncertainty of, of our parameter estimate. If 
there's a, a likelihood, a relatively high likelihood, that uh, we could observe the average after the project took place, okay, in a world where before the, the, the bank project took place, then we can't say the bank project had any effect. Okay? And let me stop my discussion of a t-test there, um, because if, if you've understood what I've been telling, it's going to be obvious. If you haven't understood, then I want to leave my description of a t-test relatively colloquial without going into all this discussion about confidence intervals and overlapping bell curves and everything you see in front of you. Okay, uh, but do please feel free to look it up and absolutely, absolutely Skype me, uh, write me an email, uh, catch me after class. If you're curious about this subject, I'm more than happy to talk and teach everybody individually if necessary because it's such a useful method, uh, such a useful uh, concept, uh, technique. Okay. Um, so then we look at our data as nerds, as you see below, we're wearing eyeglasses, which is our prototypical uh, membership card, and we can say, uh, well, yes, uh, we've determined with 95% confidence or better that the scores that we were using uh, to assess the uh, effectiveness of the bank project statistically significantly differ after the bank project rather than before. Okay, We don't say that the bank project uh, was better, we don't say that the bank project caused an improvement in budgeting, uh, statistics does not tell us um, causality. It only tells us correlation. That's why I was very careful to put it in this kind of funky academic way where I said that we have a certain level of confidence that our estimate uh, before the, the, after the project was statistically significantly different than our estimate before the project. And that's, that's the most we can say. The rest is inference on our part. And that's why I'm stressing so much the role of theory, the role of our own thinking, is because most of our work is inference. It, statistics uh, cannot tell us. Uh, statistics are like a speedometer in a car, a uh, speedometer. Right? They tell you how fast you're going, but that's basically it. They don't tell you if you're going fast or not. They don't tell you where you're going. It's theory that, that, that does all that. Okay? And that's it. That's your statistical test. Quote uh, at demonstrandum, or uh, in English, quite easily demonstrated. So you're looking at this, uh, this proposal for a statistical test, and you tell me, well, look, that's a bunch of rubbish. Um, this doesn't tell me anything. And I tell you, well, yeah, you're, you're right. Ab absolutely, it doesn't tell us anything. What do you propose instead? And you tell me, well, I would look at uh, other effectiveness scores uh, from World Bank, okay, governance indicators. Uh, I love the World Bank, and I love all their experts, and they're amazing, and everything they do is brilliant. And simply by looking at uh, regulatory quality, I think that really reflects everything there is to know about the budgetary process in uh, Uzbekistan. And of course, I don't push you to tell me your intellectual model about why you think regulatory quality translates into uh, budgetary effectiveness okay, in terms of either making or executing a budget. But I say, 
okay, well, let's look at the data. Uh, you show me the data on the graph here. You show me the pre-project period. You show me the post-project period. You say, well, these data show uh, that there was no change in regulatory quality, and um, the bank project had no impact. And so I look at you kindly, and I tell you, well, in fact, what you want to say is that judging the effectiveness of the bank project using uh, World Bank governance indicators of regulatory quality, uh, the relative stability in that indicator suggests uh, that the bank project had little impact on the Uzbek budget. Full stop. Okay. And it, it really sounds like one of these horrible academic sentences that academics are using all the time, that we all get frustrated with, but it, it's, it's the most correct rendition of what's going on here. Okay. It, it's telling us basically, given these assumptions, given this data, this is the, the conclusion that I drew. Okay. Um, that way you also leave yourself uh, protected from possible critiques. You don't you don't uh, stand up and say, "Look, the bank project had no effect uh, because regulatory quality didn't improve over the time period." And brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, this is the way the world is. Because then somebody stands up with a different data set and they prove you wrong, and everybody looks at you out of the corner of their eye forever and ever. Okay, so that's the reason why we make these hedging types of phrases is because we want we want to give the most sure assessment we can without necessary necessarily deluding the listener i mean if i walk into my minister's office would i tell this phrase absolutely not I mean, minister i looked at some data uh i think the the bank project wasn't a success okay simple crisp brief, and I might tell him in one other short sentence, uh, but hey, you might want to look at some other data, full stop. Okay, uh, That's the kind of quick and easy way of communicating the data, but amongst the experts, uh, depending on your audience, uh, communicate according to your audience. I mean, if you're in a room full of PhD, uh, economics and statistics PhDs, it's absolutely appropriate to use the longer uh, remix of this conclusion. Okay. Uh, now, you might have another test and you might say, well, look, you're trying to uh, proxy and assume and propose and postulate uh, effects of a bank project using all this other crazy data. Why don't you actually go look at the data? And I would tell you, yeah, you're absolutely right. And you look at uh, budgetary allocations before the bank project, after the bank project, uh, you see online that the um, income and expenses are reported only by region. And that's basically it. That's all I could find in my 20-second search for budget data in Uzbekistan in order to make these slides. Okay, And I find these data and I start playing with ratios, and I start playing with rates of change in income and expenses uh, between years. And I do this playing around, and I find some trends. I don't know what the trends are uh, because uh, it's not important for this exercise. But let's say you find some amazing ratios that, that really convince you that this is the measurement of uh, increased effectiveness in budgeting in Uzbekistan. Okay. I, I tell you, great, absolutely. I mean, go with any reasonable hypothesis, any 
reasonable empirical method because once you have your budget data from regions and I have my World Bank data, we can sit down sensibly and we can start to discuss which one's more rational, which underlying models are more reasonable. Okay. Until we got to this stage, it was impossible for us to have a mature discussion together. Um, so uh, the, the, the final point I want to bring up from the slide, of course, is that any one document will be replete with possible types of statistical tests you can propose. Uh, it's not important which test you choose. I'm much more interested in knowing why you chose that test and how you'll implement that test. Now I want to talk a bit more about your synthetic thinking. I want to continue to give you examples as you fumble your way through this method of learning, of bringing the course material together. Okay, as uh, my uh, ultimate uh, parting observation, my let's see, penultimate parting observation, in fact. Uh, so we've been discussing fieldwork, and we've been discussing how to uh, design a empirical test of uh, the uh, one particular bank project in Uzbekistan. Okay, and we looked at various uh, empirical methods, and you say, okay, I understand that for Uzbekistan. I, I think I've gone as far as I want to go today on Uzbekistan because I'm tired of talking about Central Asia. And you open your syllabus, and you see another reading about agency problems and public management evidence from debt management function. And you ask yourself, well, I was just looking at Uzbekistan. I was just looking at how I might measure a question in that context, did I learn something from that case that can help me think about the author's analysis in, in this paper, in, in Lubby's paper? Okay. And so I look through Lubby's paper and I look at the question that he's trying to uh, he's trying to answer, talking about upfront saving structure decisions, and he looked at a couple of explanatory, ex explanatory variables. Okay, existence of debt policy. Uh, this is an example of the dummy variable that I was talking about earlier. It's called dummy because either it's one or zero. It doesn't contain any useful inf any useful information, any useful variance in it. It's just either on or off. Okay, that's why it's a dummy variable. Um, credit ratings, uh, issuer size, etc. Okay, and you sit back and you look at this formulation and you ask yourself, well. How does the model drawing that I learned 12 slides ago, and how does the fieldwork kind of stuff that I learned two slides ago, how would that help me answer Lubby's question? And much more importantly, how can I critique Lubby's methodology in light of all of this, these cool techniques that I just learned, okay, or relearned? Um, Lubby uses a particular model in order to drive his analysis, okay, and of course he relies on particular available uh, data, data which are easily available, because all, all us academics were the same. We want to use publicly available data which we can download easily because it's quick, cheap, and gives us a publication, okay. Uh, of course we're we're publication maximizing agents. We want to maximize uh, the number and impact of publications at the least cost possible, okay, uh, with the maximum number of citations. Uh, we have the same profit maximizing function that a company or a government might, except in our case it's, it has to do with uh, publications and citations. So you look at his methodology and you say, okay, well, 
that's a fine first step if I wanted to know about this topic. How might I design a fieldwork engagement? Okay, let's assume that I really wanted to know something about agency problems and public management, and I wanted to look at debt management as, as he has done, but let's assume that I work in a debt management department. Okay, how would I structure this empirical work differently, as cheaply as possible, of course, but in order to drive uh, particular conclusions which uh, Dear Lubby didn't have access to? Okay, so you'll certainly want to use your new insights on em empirics to lead you to critique and think about the readings that you've covered so far, all the way back into week one. I mean, think even in week one and week two. We were talking about uh, Turkish uh, public expenditure, Georgian public expenditure. Um, assume that you actually want that that you didn't just take whatever the bank's mission findings were at face value okay we read the report and we basically have to uh take the analysis that the staff give us at face value plus the data that they give us okay and one impossible question would be to ask well let's assume we wanted to repeat the study now how would we design that study in the light of all this fieldwork stuff that, that we've been learning about in the course? Okay, So you'll always want to be linking the material from different weeks together. So we arrive then at the last slide. And um, I feel that my duty as an academic isn't done unless I elucidate you at least a little bit about some of these more fancy abstract academic thinkings. I mean, uh, your whole time in, uh, in the academy shouldn't be focused only on grabbing as many skills as possible to ap apply profitably in a, in a work context. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, the reasons why empiricism is bad as well as good. Uh, throughout the course, I've been pushing you so much every single week. Uh, there is no conclusion without data. But it would, it would be remiss of me not to acknowledge uh, other perspectives in the social sciences. Uh, one critique of the empiricist approach is that we tend to measure only what, what gets looked at. Uh, the analogy is a drunk guy uh, looking for his keys. Okay, There's a drunk guy in a field. He's um, under the street lamp looking for his keys. He's been there an hour, two hours, three hours. And his mate goes up to him and he says, Oi, why are you looking only under the, the streetlight for the keys? And he says, well, that's, that's, that's the only place I can see. And um, this story is supposed to illustrate the fact that we only look in areas where we can see, even though this guy's car keys might well be in the unlit part of the field. Uh, the same goes with public sector budget. I mean, many of the most interesting theories um, hypotheses, speculations we can make are in areas of governance which are not measured. Okay, uh, Areas where we do not measure uh, revenues, measure expenditure. And um, we, we know basically that uh, if something doesn't get measured in government, it doesn't get done. I mean, otherwise, how to assess people's performance, especially in this day and age. Okay, So that has led to the very practical implication that, well, if if what gets if what doesn't get measured doesn't get done, then we shouldn't measure anything and we shouldn't do anything. Okay? Measurement is bad 
because it focuses our attention, our resources, only to those things which, which we can measure. Okay? And so we have to just throw overboard this whole paradigm of measurement because it's not uh, it's not targeted at providing democratic efficient government. It's targeted at this very stylized managerial view of government is that uh, you reward things based on me on measurement. You punish things based on measured outcomes and everything has to be measured. Otherwise, it's not worth doing, Okay, uh, which clearly leads to serious problems of public service and good provision. Uh, there's many areas of uh, public life that cannot be measured, but it's very important that we do them, and having an empirical approach to those types of activities completely destroys uh, the, the very basic premise of service provision in that area. I mean, let, let's think about teaching, an uh, area near and dear to my own heart. There are uh, there are lots of norms of informal uh, institutions, uh, trust, uh, public service dedication, uh, which have been shown many times to be much more effective than a system of performance assessment and uh, salary or non-salary re rewards. But it's very difficult to measure a public service ethic, for example. And uh, within the literature, various literatures, there have been numerous critiques that the uh, destruction of this public service ethic in government has reduced overall uh, quality of government service provision. Okay? And the problem with that argument is, is that it's impossible to, to defend. Because if somebody says, well, measurement is the cause of the problem, you can't very well turn around and say, yeah, buddy, you're absolutely right. Why don't we measure the extent to which non-measurement has led to a problem? Okay, So the, the critique in itself contains the uh, rebuttal of the, the method of evaluating the critique, okay? Uh, and that's one of the, 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 the many problems with anti-empiricism is that we all recognize it's very important and it's certainly arguments like this which come in during our critical assessment of the models and measures that we do throughout this course and throughout our lives. Mm. But as the, the sole driving method of making policy, I think uh, there's a consensus that the don't measure uh, method is it's not for everyone everywhere. Okay, um, that's one possible critique of the empirical method that I've been showing you. Another relates to what some scholars have called type three error. Okay, and rather than go through the history, I'll just tell you flat out what type three error is. It's the error that we make. By observing the data, we come up with the hypothesis that, that we're then interested in testing. Okay? I mean, we know that it's good practice in the sciences to first form the hypothesis and then go out, collect data, and test. Okay? We don't want to measure the extent to which children's height correlates with uh, um, increasing dryness over time. Okay. Uh, because we've observed these two things in the past, okay, uh, global warming, uh, children getting taller on average uh, per cohort, uh, we're then tempted to say, well, look, this is what we've seen. Uh, this is a, a theory, okay, whatever whacked out theory you have, and therefore uh, the data show us the theory's right. Okay. The whole point of empirics is to independently validate a theory that we have, and by looking at the budget, 
or by looking at a financial statement, uh, seeing patterns and then going out and test them, uh, that exactly destroys the whole purpose of using data. So we can't let the data guide us in using the data. But then we step back and we say, well, the, this represents a greater problem than it seems at first glance, because almost all of our theories are based on, on, on um, some kind of empirical validation, maybe from the past. I mean, how do we know about uh, Oaken's law? How do we know about Keynesian economics? How do we know about uh, many of the artifices that we build uh, our basic methods of policy analysis upon? And the answer is that some bright spark somewhere came up with an idea. He went out. He tested it. He told us, look, that's an acceptable way of theorizing about uh, policy. And then here we come uh, observing something else. We take this theory, and then we take data in order to test the theory. Well, in fact, we are, we're, we're simply in some ways using this maybe new data set, maybe not new data set, in order to uh, replicate, reevaluate a previous theory based on other data. Okay? And there are conditions under which that is a valid technique. There are many conditions under which that is not a valid technique. And as this is not a course in empirical methods, I don't want to belabor the point too much, other than to say that it's going to be an enormous temptation to you throughout your whole working life. Okay, uh, You're going to see things just in your own daily experience. I mean, maybe uh, bosses who wore black ties, they were all jerks, and this leads you to a particular hypothesis. And then you go out uh, to another department, and you find again that everyone who wears a black tie is a jerk. Uh, and therefore, this really proves your hypothesis, okay? Um, and so we said, well, fine, but how did you make this hypothesis in the first place? And you said, well, I remember from my last agency. And we tell you, oh, well, friend, you can't do that. You have to create theory in the abstract. And you reply, well, what do you want me to do? Uh, float in some saline solution somewhere my whole life and not, not experience anything? which is impossible. It's entirely normal for us to take our life experience, to take the data that we see, uh, come up with what we think are these amazingly brilliant new theories, and then test them, only to find out that, well, A, they're not new at all, and B, that we've, we've simply used uh, the data we're measuring now, we've used it in order to construct the theory or the worldview that helped influence us in our analysis. Okay. Um, that's the second critique. The third critique, the Schrodinger's cat critique, uh, it's not German, it's actually English. So if you try and sound it out in English, it should be kind of amusing, hopefully. I'm a funny guy, what can I say? The picture's not mine, so if you don't like it, don't blame me. And this critique uh, has to do with um, measurement uh, and theorizing, okay, is that we, we look at uh, revenues, we look at expenditures, we look at various measurable aspects of governance, and that leads us to particular conclusions. Okay, fine, fair enough. So far, so good. The only problem, though, is that the people who are collecting these data know that we're watching them. Okay. Uh, they know that if uh, <clears throat> expenditure to revenue ratios get too far out of line, then someone's going to come a-knocking. Okay. And therefore, knowing that they might be watched, that is going to determine their behavior today. 
So we come up later and we say, oh, well, you know, these ratios tell us that uh, everything is normal, it's under control, when in fact it's our process of watching which led to these ratios to be under control in the first place. Okay? If there were not guys like us going around doing these kinds of studies, making these kinds of theories, the whole government landscape might look completely different than it does today. So it is the mere process of observation which leads to the theories that we're, well, theorizing about, okay? It is our, um, the, the word reification is great, I love this word. Reification means we bring into reality that particular theory that we've, we've hypothesized about. Okay, uh, we hypothesize that government agencies will not spend above a certain ratio in terms of uh, absolute revenue in a particular category. Okay, fine. We go out, um, we we measure. We might uh, go and meet some uh, agency heads and say, uh, "Look, dear agency head, uh, we're interested in this research question about expenditure relative to overall revenue." And the agency head, a uh, little warning light goes off in his head and it says, hmm, well, maybe I should control this in the future. So you do part of your research, you get bored, you wander off for a while. Meanwhile, the guys you are doing field work with have modified their behavior. And it is your theorizing that has caused this change in the world to actually occur. Okay? It's the uh, Schrodinger government theory, if you will. Okay? Uh, but it is a valid point that it is this whole process of theorizing, measuring, which can often very, very much influence the thing that we're measuring. Um, and you're thinking right now, well, let's do it in secret, let's do it confidentially, uh, that'll solve the problem. I don't, want, I don't want to make this into a philosophy class, but the answer is no, it doesn't. So, if we can pause from our philosophical ruminations for a moment, uh, let's review what we've did and what we will do. Uh, basically, in this series of uh, slides, I've tried to show you, again, uh, practice makes perfect, how to bring quantitative analysis into your briefs. Um, as I record these slides, we're going into midterm season, and many of you will be writing uh, policy briefs, analyzing one of the cases from the course, or uh, a question about uh, organizations and institutions. Okay? And it will be somewhat nebulous about how to bring in uh, uh, empirical studies, uh, quantitative data, Excel charts into your analysis. And so hopefully this is another chip in that, uh, in that wall as you start to internalize many of the tools and techniques from this course. Okay? Uh, we talked about integrating the soft side of the course and the hard side of the course. In the first weeks, I was uh, focusing very much on uh, theories, on tools, uh, drawing uh, supply and demand curves, uh, throwing concepts on the board that look like, wow, what's this guy talking about? Why is he dancing around? Okay. And the whole goal was to start to get you comfortable with these concepts as you learn to integrate them uh, all together throughout the course. Uh, as you see, as we're progressing through the course, I'm starting to introduce the harder side, the more quantitative side, and how to measure many of the theories and policy questions that you're developing throughout your studies. And uh, I guess as a parting uh, shot then, 
uh, about what we will do in the rest of the, of the class? And the answer is we're going to be doing the, the same thing that we've been doing up till now. Okay, we're looking at cases, we're looking at how to tackle cases, we're looking at how to combine um, the material from various weeks in order to provide a more, more full uh, analysis. It is my sincere hope that each week you will find a very different conclusion to the answers that you found in week two, in week three, in week four. And it doesn't mean that you're incompetent or uncertain. It just means that your analysis is getting deeper and deeper. Okay. And um, as a final kind of uh, parting expression, let me uh, note that the previous slide wasn't permission to dump the empirical work that we've been doing all term now. Uh, don't let me give you the impression, well, there's two camps. There's the empiricist camp and there's the postmodern camp. And if you're a postmodernist, I mean, well, okay, jolly good. It's all's fair, really. Uh, postmodern uh, theorists are people too, etc. Uh, I don't want to give this impression at all. If you want a managerial job in government in the private sector, you, in my opinion, absolutely must be able to manipulate data. You must be able to interpret data. You must be able to form hypotheses, test hypotheses. Uh, I appreciate very much postmodernism as a critique, as a perspective, but I'm not sure you'll hire, you'll convince very many employers to hire you by telling you, oh, all this empirical stuff is rubbish and Excel, it's, it's all just a pile of nonsense. And you know, I'm one of these free and easy spirits. Um, my advice is go with the Excel, go with the statistics as much as you can. Uh, ask me all possible questions. I'm here to help you develop those skills.